You're listening to Savage Wonder, a podcast about warriors and artists. It's long-form one-on-one conversations with veterans in the arts. This show is produced by the Veterans Repertory Theater, which is a creative hub for talented veterans and world-class performers to create compelling live theater and events. Events not just like this podcast, but also like the Savage Wonder Literary Blog, or the Write Loud events on Instagram Live, or our 2022 staged reading series, which runs from April 2nd through December on just about every Saturday during that time frame. Check out all those lines of effort and get tickets, learn more about it at vetrep.org, V-E-T-R-E-P.org, vetrep.org, vetrep.org. On May 29th, 2022, at the Sugarloaf Performing Arts Center in beautiful upstate Chester, New York, we will have the Savage Wonder Festival of Veterans in the Arts. Now, just like Christmas isn't supposed to be about just getting presents, Memorial Day weekend isn't supposed to be just about the start of summer. It's supposed to be our chance to remember those that have died for our freedoms. And we feel there's no better way to commemorate the ones we've lost than to celebrate them artistically through the art, the poetry, the dance, the music, the theater of their brothers and sisters in arms. So with the proceeds of the festival going to local veterans nonprofits here in Orange County, New York, uh, Clear Path for Veterans, Blue Star Families, YIT Foundation, us, the Veterans Repertory Theater, Savage Wonder Festival is not just about honoring the past and celebrating the past. It's also about helping veterans in the present. It's not a wake, it's a celebration, and we invite everyone to come out um, and help us do that. Now, as far as the performers go, every performer is a veteran, uh, and they are also a professional artist. So it's not a veteran's talent show, it's actually for professional artists that are veterans and making their way as professional artists. But what we found is their backstories, the tragedy, the struggle, the perseverance, the triumph, it gives a resonance, it gives a depth, it gives a real um, strength to their art. So whether you're watching Ramon Baca, uh, you know, who is a dancer, became a Marine machine gunner, deployed to Fallujah, Iraq, and now is an award-winning dance choreographer, and his dance company, Exit 12, or whether you're listening to Jesus Daniel Hernandez, who was an Iraq veteran who was handpicked by Placido Domingo to be one of his protégés, you're going to hear incredible backstories about these veterans and you're going to see them and uh, really appreciate the world-class artistry that they bring to the table. It's going to be a blast. It's going to be a fun day. I can't wait for it to get here. You can find out everything you possibly could want to know about the festival at savagewonder.com. That's savagewonder, all one word, dot com, savagewonder.com. My guest this week was Mason Roadrig. Now, you guys probably remember Mason. He was on the show about six months ago, but this is the first, he is the first truly repeat guest we've had on the show. Um, and I know Roman Baca was on the show twice in consecutive weeks. We did a part one and part two with Roman. Um, I don't know what it is about Marines. We keep having to have them on and go twice, but be that as it may, Mason's is the first truly standalone repeat episode that we've had on the show. And we had him on the show because, um, if you guys remember Keith Dow's episode, he talked about how Rock Eater, 
Mason's book was um, getting ready to be published. Uh, I had had plenty of offline discussions with Mason about it. I knew it was coming. And I told Mason, you know, hey, let me know when, when you're ready to plug it and we'll get you back on the show, which is by, incidentally something I say to uh, every writer we've had on the show because um, I've been a huge fan of everyone we've had so far. It's the privilege of hosting this show. <laughs> but uh, with Mason, uh, he said, hey, I'm, I'm good to go. Uh, they sent me an advanced copy, and I, I want to thank the guys at Dead Reckoning for doing that. Uh, you know, they asked, there was, they put a, uh, I, won't, I don't think I'm diming them out by saying they put a note in the book and, um, you know, said, you know, give your honest assessment of it, uh, you know, and, and you, know, you certainly don't have to spin anything for them or for an audience. Um, but, you know, we'll have Mason on the show and, you know, here's the book, read it, and by all means, let fly. Uh, so let me pause right there because I want to make one point of clarification in the past week for no real reason. I just kind of stumbled upon my own podcast and, and listened to a little bit of this show, which I rarely, if ever do, especially lately. And I realized how much of a fucking cheese ball I was becoming. I was like, Jesus Christ. Uh, I don't know what it is, but I'm, I'm, I seem like I'm over the top too often and really like almost corny in my effusive praise of different folks we have on. Well, as I say, it's, it's my privilege to be able to pick who I want on the show. And generally, spoiler alert, it's going to be people I really, whose work I really like and enjoy or I'm intrigued by. So it's not usually asking a lot for me to be effusive. Uh, you know, it's not a surprise. It's kind of meant to be that way. That said, I was the corniness, the, the cheesiness uh, that I was detecting. And maybe this is subjective. Maybe it, this is just in my head. But I was like, ah, God, you know, made me wince a little bit. And I reminded myself of why I don't listen to myself that often. Um, so in my head, I was like, okay, well, I'm going to talk to Mason. Keep it in your pants. You know, don't go over the top. Don't be such a fucking cheese ball uh, when you talk to him. You know, or, or just be conscious that, you know, there's that possibility and just, you know, try to curb your enthusiasm, to coin a phrase. And then I sat down and read his book. And I planned to read it over the period of a couple of days so I could read a little bit each day. That didn't happen. Read it all in one sitting. And it's not War and Peace, but it's not a pamphlet either. Um, and I was, I think, about 20, 25 pages in. And I was like, I, I think this is going to be a pivotal piece of veteran literature, that this is going to go down in the annals of veteran literature as a, a um, significant work. And God knows we have had plenty of talented writers on this show with some phenomenal books. But what made this book stand out is, for one thing, unlike other authors, Mason doesn't have to introduce us to him to get us to want to read it because he's already picked a subject matter um, and not in some Machiavellian plan, but just naturally because of his interest, because of his life, he wanted to write about lower enlisted Marine Corps infantry life. And that's a subject that's going to hit home for a lot of folks. So he has that over a lot of other writers that that he doesn't have to, no one has to care about Mason Roadrig to buy the book, pick up the book, get into the book. Um, but then counterintuitively, 
the more Mason writes about the particulars of his life and the emotionally significant events that he's gone through, the more universal the book actually becomes. And this is true for any number of writers, uh, certainly not Mason alone, but in this case, the way he, um, you know, just the nature of his writing, uh, it does suck you in and you are going along on the ride of this autobiographical narrative in poetic form. And, you know, as you guys may remember, if you, uh, or if you didn't, I'll recap for you what I told him the first time he's on the show. Mason is, um, a marketing person's dream because he is never not on brand. I mean, his name is fucking Mason Roadrig. Who, what kind of person has a name Mason Roadrig? The kind of person that writes the way Mason writes, the kind of person that plays football and plays rugby and joins the Marines and becomes a machine gunner, you know, and that's how he writes. So everything he does is perfectly on brand. And as a result, his voice, his writer's voice is incredibly strong and unshakable. And we'll talk about you. We, we, I won't give you spoilers when we talk about his process and, and his writing and all that during the course of the episode. But what comes across in the book is um, just such a mainline into that infantry, Marine infantry mindset that, you know, it, it's something that I think is going to find a lot of purchase in the military community and in the community of even civilians or academics that want to understand a certain kind of military mindset. So I think there is a natural audience out there for it and an audience that is going to see the depth and resonance of this work and that this work is going to be around in a very substantial way. I, I really believe for decades, I think it's going to be a seminal work in the field of veteran literature. So, so much for not being a cheeseball James Lipton type character. Um, I was like, all right, well that went out the fucking window but um, deservedly so. It's a hell of a piece of work. Mason gives a good shout out during the episode to Keith and Tyler at Dead Reckoning for the work that they did in getting the book into the shape that it's in. We only talked for two and a half hours, so clearly I didn't have enough time to go into that even more and get into the details of how they helped. But uh, to the degree that they did, uh, I mean, what a hell of a team effort that they put into that book. Um. All that is to say, I couldn't recommend the book more. I think if you want to be on the cutting edge of a book that is really going to move the needle in a lot of communities, uh, get it. Check the show notes. We'll have all the links there and everything else. I know I've talked at length about the book. Um, I couldn't help but do so. Mason's going to be speaking, going to be performing, reading his work from this book at the Savage Wonder Festival. And it's a happy accident when my own self-interest in pumping him up and promoting him happens to perfectly overlap with an actual honest assessment of his book. Um, you know, I'm not prone to bullshitting. I may be prone to <laughs> effusive superlatives, but um, but they're honest. And in Mason's case, uh, they happened despite my best efforts. So um, just I couldn't give a better recommendation to the book. Okay, I know I went long, guys, but uh, you'll see. When you read the book, you'll understand why. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. I'm the Artistic Director of Vet Rep, and this is The Savage Wonder of Mason Roadrig.
Okay, let me start with this. I'm, I'm trying to hold back because I'm trying not to be effusive um, too early. I don't know. I, I it, Sometimes I, I don't listen to myself very often, and lately I've noticed I'm becoming like a James Lipton type, if that name means anything to you, the guy from Actor Studio. I'm, I'm becoming like him where I'm like over-the-top effusive, and I mean it, but I, I just sound like a fucking cheese ball. so I'm trying not to be as effusive, but... Dude, um, this book is legitimately going to be around forever. This book is is like, and I, I don't say that um, frivolously or or capriciously or arbitrarily like that. This book is proper fucking literature that is going to seriously be required reading. I will not be surprised if this ends up on multiple commandant reading lists and um and is even taught at the academies i know you know naval academies pass that along and, and it, it's been read there but uh dude it, it is a phenomenal phenomenal piece well of if it ends up on the commandant's reading list i'm looking at the fifth w right now section one chapter four poem seven uh-huh. Uh-huh. it ends with it ends with the line uh, and that first sergeant is why I got a DUI in Georgia on the 72. Yeah. Fuck you and everything else. That's why. So if this makes the commandant's reading list, um, no, I'll, I'll be just as shocked. There's another one. Uh, there's a poem in here titled fuck. Um, and it's just literally the third line is fuck first sergeant. Um, so, yeah, but, that's, mean, but that's why, but that's why it's going to end up on the reading list. So, I mean, look, I mean, the, first off, I think most general officers, I, I think at this point, it seems like they like to do kind of uh, counterintuitive. They like to make some counterintuitive choices on their reading lists. Yeah. And I think anybody, I mean, it, it might end up on non-Marine related, uh, in, in non-Marine related uh, service environments. But I definitely think for anybody that's going to be planning on interacting with Marines, especially lower enlisted Marines and infantrymen, I, I can't see. I, I don't think anybody would turn this down because they're going to know how real this is. And um, I, I, I've got a lot of stuff, granular stuff, I want to talk about with you about it. But I just want to start by saying that that um, you know, as rough and raw as the emotions are, this is fucking literature. Um, and, and let me be clear. I mean. We've had some great writers on here. I think Poppy's was great. I think Anthony Roberts stuff was great. I, I think I think you know there's there's some phenomenal poets out there. This book is um, because I think of its very service specific subject matter. I think it's going to find a home in a lot of people's psyches very very quickly and very poignantly and very permanently. Um, I, I just see this being. Um, I, I don't know. I'm, I, and I know I just said I don't want to be super effusive and, and over the top, but let me just say this. I, I can see that there will be people. I, I don't I can see that the reason it almost seems like your life and the choices and the regrets and the mistakes that you made happened so that you could write this fucking book. Um, like, God, like that's, horrible. that's a horrible trade-off. It, it, it's <laughs> a, well, it's I a horrible short end of that stick, brother. <laughs> maybe, maybe, but, but it's early. 
and the book's just out. <laughs> you know, the book's only on pre-order. Uh, wait till wait till you see what the second and third order effects of this book coming out. Uh, are. Hopefully, the second and third order effects are uh, a ma- big, big numbers in the pre-sale. Uh, that's it's true. That's true. Point, I am like, I just want to make a fucking profit off of it. <laughs> if I'm gonna nope. put all this out I there, got you. Um, I, I I can just see in in ten to fifteen years, you're still being invited on campuses to read selections about this. I I just think there's a lot of because it's as much as it is very marine specific, it also isn't. It's very male specific. It's for a lot of you know we have a young men problem in the country, and I yeah. think this is something that speaks to a lot of those problems. We have you know, marriage, family problems. We have, you know, we have a lot of problems and this speaks to it and um, kind of what happens downstream of a lot of those issues. And I think, uh, I don't think this is going to lose relevance anytime soon. And I think it's um, phenomenally written. All right. Enough blowing smoke up your ass, but I, I really, I, it was incredibly moving. And um, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I said, I read it over a couple of days. It's actually not true. I, I read it all in one sitting. Um, it was a phenomenal read. And I like that you through. brought up. I like that you brought up its its tie into masculinity because so much of why I joined the Marine Corps, so much so much of why young men join the Marine Corps and join the infantry is because the recruiting pitch, the sales pitch, is that we are going to turn you into the ultimate man. Mm-hmm. You are going to be a, a warrior. You're going to be part of this tribe, and and even bring it up like um, you, you like just now when you mentioned like marriage, divorce, problems with just. I, um, the, the more I look back on my life and the more, you know, just not just through writing this book, but I'm in this phase where I'm 31 and I'm, I went through a lot of, uh, therapy in 2021 and it's just unpacking, like nothing happens in a vacuum. And I kicked the can of my own like mental health and taking care of myself. Um, I kicked that can as far down the road as I could, like, not to say, I'm not going to sit here and be like, oh, I'm a victim or I had this like effed up childhood. Right. Right. Like divorce, divorce affects kids and yeah. relationships with your parents affect that. And then just like the culture uh, we grow up in now, like I'm Jin, I'm a millennial, um, which gets blamed for like all the problems. But, right. um, I, you know, my generation was told to go to college because that is just the key to everything. And yeah, right. just take out. And it's like none of this shit worked. The system broke, and our parents didn't really know that it was broken yet, or who broke it. Yeah. Uh, and now we're all like that meme of Spider-Man, where we're all pointing at each other. Like, right. Right. Well, there, there, there definitely is. Um, I think the theme of the early twenties right now is divide, is the separation, the dividing of us. We're divided by every single demographic we can think of, whether it's gender, whether it's race, whether it's uh, age, generations, you know, um, everything is constantly uh, driving us to uh, separate from each other. And I think what is one of the many upsides of this book is that it is a intergenerational, um, it, it, it addresses intergenerational problems that any, anybody can relate to. Um, I mean, I'm Gen X. I'm sure other people, I'm sure Vietnam veterans can, are going to read this and go, yes, got it. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. You, you put words to emotions and, and it's the kind of, I'll tell you the best compliment maybe I can give you is kicking myself and going, how the fuck did I not write something like this? 
you know, like you steal words from people's from people's mouths that a lot of times, you know, you've lived it and you're like, I never put words to it like that. And you capture that incredibly well. Um, I want to dive into some of this stuff. And and I, again, I just can't tell you what a what a pleasure it is when my self-interest in promoting your book for the festival and for you being at the festival happens to merge with a completely honest assessment. Um, that just makes life super easy. So I can see this book um, easily attracting people for political reasons. I can see people diving in and going, oh, this is great anti-war book, fuck the Marine Corps, um, you know, even maybe writ larger, fuck America to some degree, um, and and kind of being an anti-war book. And then I can also see it, people going to it and going, hell yeah, this is going to be a good glorification of, you know, war, Marine Corps culture, et cetera. And it's neither, really. It's it's, it's both. It's both and it's neither. There's a poem at the very end where it's the, the, you know, it ends with me transitioning out and, and I guess to give back people background on what this book is like, I wrote this, I never sat down and said, I'm going to write rock eater. Right. Um, you know, people who talk to me and they're like, well, I write and I do this. I'm like, well, what are you writing a memoir? Are you writing short stories? I'm like, I wrote, this is belt fed poetry. These are outbursts. These are moments where I was in a barracks room or I was drunk or I was at home on leave with my family and I couldn't find words to speak. I didn't know how to feel about something. And I just opened up the notes app on my phone and just went cyclic and just got it out there. And luckily I had Keith Dow to help refine this thing and make it look a little bit better. But I mean, it really just came out of me and it's, this is how I expressed what I experienced over that time. And it's not, it's not fuck the Marine Corps and it's not pro Marine Corps. And it's not anti-war. It's not, it's, it's, this is the, this is the experience I had yep. as a yep. Marine. It's yep. Honestly, nothing more and nothing less. I don't want it to be, I really don't want it to be used as a platform for or against. Um, and I, I have written some anti-war stuff. That's going to be a separate book. That's going to be me saying, Hey, I'm being intentionally political here. These are my mm-hmm. views. Yeah. What happened to me and what happens to most people when they join the Marine Corps is they tell you, don't worry about how the sausage is made, just that we're making the sausage, right? Um, Boot camp does an incredible job of taking young men and women and making them Marines. Part of that is putting yourself in, in a lot of ways, your own humanity secondary to being a Marine, right? This poetry started happening when who I was as a person was no longer able to coexist alongside me being a Marine, more or less, um, if that makes sense. Yep, that does make sense. There is that- a, you can see the conflict with my identity throughout this book, mm-hmm. where it's like, I have, I have pledged and committed to be a Marine for four years, and nobody actually understands what that means until you're in it and what it takes and and how much it's going to demand of you and, and um. And I don't regret it either. I I go back and forth on on that. Like, do I regret it? It's like I, there's no. When I look back, there's no there's no version of my story where I don't do that. Right. Because right. it's always that would have been a missing part of my life. I yeah. felt called to it from day one. Uh, first poem kind of tells you why. Um, it does, and I wanted to ask you actually about that first poem. It's called Adolescence, um, and it's. You know, in- incredibly. Uh, I mean, it's autobiographical. It's it's very detailed. Did you write that 
for this book or had you written that separately as a standalone piece? I wrote some things for this book. I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and say that that sure. one's book because yeah. I started compiling things and putting it together and putting it all in order. And I was like, Holy shit, this does tell a story when you put it in order. Yeah. But um, when I put the, the manuscript together, I'm like, well, there's some gaps, there's some missing context. And um, I guess I had developed enough as a writer to be able to on the spot, fill that gap. Yeah. Um, but that's, it, it starts, it literally starts out with adolescence. The first poem is about me. Uh, it's about nine 11 happening the day before my 11th birthday. And that kind of just sticking with me. I, I watched Jarhead when I was 15. Um, at my grandparents' house because we were all after the divorce, we all lived there for a while. Me and my little brother, uh, our bedroom was our grandparents' dining room uh, for about a year. But I watched Jarhead. My uh, my grandfather had like the DVD of it, and I watched it, and I was just like, something about whatever this culture is that he's depicting. It Jarhead's an honest depiction, and it's not yeah. a flat depiction of the Marine Corps, but something about it. I felt called to, I felt like that's where all the other young men who don't know what to do, but know they have to do something are going to be. And sure enough, that's where they were. And, uh, I, you know, some of the best friends and best people I've ever met in my life were in that unit. Um, yeah. it's in some ways, in a lot of ways, this book is a love letter to my unit, um, to the people I was there with and who went through it with me. And, um, I'll, I'll use this now while I'm speaking to clarify that I actually had great first sergeants, um, even though I say fuck first sergeant once or twice in here. I had some right. Really, right. really good first sergeants. Um, I just kind of let myself get caught up in some of the more toxic parts of infantry culture. I thought joining like late, I would be able to rise above it, but it's kind of just you become what you're surrounded by. And it's. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's an immersive culture. I mean, you can't, you can't I, I it's, it's to separate. Yeah. What that is in here as much as I can. And there's a book toward the end where it's like I talk about questioning after getting out, like, was I a good Marine? Yeah. Like that, that mattered to me then. And it, it matters to me today, a year and a half later. You know, I got a, a grown out of mullet and trashy facial hair. And it's like I still think about that. Yeah. Um, you know, what kind of impact did I leave? And you know. If my junior Marines are any indication of it, I did a decent enough job. A couple of them re-enlisted. One of them got Marine of the quarter. Um, you know, they're studs. So. Yeah. Yeah. I want, I, I want to, um, I want to read your second poem because I think, uh, you know, we talked about masculinity. Yeah. And um, I think there's an immense amount that's relatable to it. So it's called original sin. Yeah. And I'm going to read it just because I really want to, <laughs> and I'm going to save you to read it at another point, probably. But uh, I, I just freaking love this piece. Yeah, this is going to be something I end up reading at uh, Savage Wonder, isn't it? A hundred percent. It's because because it, it's it. I mean, you know, I'm well. We'll we'll talk about that. I, I don't know. <laughs> There's so much in here that I think is worth saying to a uh, speaking aloud to it to a large in person audience, but. Uh, We'll see how, how much we talk about that on the show right now and how much we talk about that offline. Um, I, I just, I think a lot of people are going to find a lot to like in that. But original sin. I wanted to know war and why men fight, where they come from, how they bond and love and die. 
I wanted to see the guns fire, how men kill, what violence they do, faraway desolate lands that we go to, adventure turned sour and spoiled, forbidden fruits from the tree of knowledge. I left my Eden, said goodbye to my Eve because I wanted to know. Knowledge is power and might makes right. When you're at war with yourself, you make your whole life a fight. I think that beautifully sums up the book that is to follow. Um, that's, the, that's the theme of the book. Yeah, a hundred percent. Adolescence is context. Original sin is this is the overall theme right yeah. here. Yeah, this is it. And then when did, one, when did you write that? When did I or, write that? Yeah, um, I wrote that probably. That's not the original version. That's not how it first came out. I uh-huh. probably that in uh, late 2019, right after integrated training exercise out in California, uh, really drunk uh, in my barracks. Um, okay. One night, just, just just smashed. So let me um, let let's talk some um, nitty gritty writer details. Sure. Um, how much editing went into this book? Because uh, I, well, I I I know you like to to spit it out, and I know you. It's a quick flash to bang with you that you're not a huge editor, but you sat down and edited the crap out of a lot of this, didn't you? I did well, I've done a lot of editing a lot of different poems over time, right? So, and, and to be honest, I have I don't I don't have track of how certain things were edited, but it was one of those things where like I realized some point in like 2020, a lot of the writing started in 2019, so that I, I got. The DUI was summer of 18, and then we delayed that NJP as long as we could. It finally uh, hit me upside the back of the head uh, October 3rd, and then I spent a month and a half uh, locked down of the room uh, and kind of like, what am I going to do with my life? I'm a 28-year-old PFC again. Um, And then 2019, Junior Marines showed up, and um, this is a, a bit personal, but I'll put it out there. But I had uh, I had linked up with my ex while I was home on Christmas leave, and there was a, a thought of maybe we could try to work it out, which, spoiler alert, doesn't happen. But um, I began to, like, write her letters again um, because she really liked when I was writing letters to her and mm. came, wanted me to do that while I was in Syria, and I was just too busy, like, no, I'm, I'm doing the Syria thing. It's kind of very involved. Um patrolling 18 hours every other day. But, um, so I started writing letters. Um, and then I just started writing in general. Um, and then it turned into poetry partly because I saw what dead reckoning had just done. They just put out this collection of, uh, the love and war. And I was very much feeling the whole, like in love and war. Right. Um, really feeling that. And I saw like how many other veterans were doing poetry. And I was like, this is a really easy way to just get it out. You know what I mean? So I wrote a lot in 2019, wrote a lot in 2020. And in 2020 was when I started, like, I would go through the notes app and look, and I was just kind of like, dude, there's so much in here. Like, there's yeah. a lot in here. And I would go through and read them again. And I would see like, can, can I make it better? What can I fix? You know, some of them, not all of it was good. Uh, I'll be, I'll be straight with you. Like not all poetry. Of course. Sure. Especially when you first start writing. Yeah. Um, right after the one you just read, don't follow me right after mm-hmm. that. that very early poem, but I love it. It's one of my favorites to this day um, because it's just simple. That that just rattled off. Um, but um, 
you know, I, I was going through some, 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 you know, everybody in Oki was pretty depressed. We were locked down to the, to schwa. We couldn't do anything. We were just living groundhog day every day, drinking a lot. And, um, I had maybe four or five months left and I started kind of sharing it more and more with some of the guys, um, guys that I was close to, I knew weren't going to just absolutely drag me for writing poetry. Right. Right. Uh, and they're like, you should start an Instagram. And I did. And it, it has grown to what it is now. It's it's networked me with it's turned into something that has put me in touch with people in real life and allowed right. me to affect change and be involved in nonprofits. And, and really, I hate to use the term, but it's like really influence in a positive way. Yeah. Uh, and it's crazy because all the boys from the unit like absolutely love it. And I just wonder, like, if I had shared this with them at the bricks, would they have been like, yo, that's gay bro (laughs) right 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 yeah but at the same time like because it's like you said though it's not just bullshit it's real it's it's something that everyone can touch and tap into and i realized i I had I, i realized like that i had done something right when i started the instagram page in like fallujah and marja veterans were reaching out to the page yeah saying yep. hey, this thing you wrote really talks to me because it's not all necessarily about like war or a specific conflict it's about being a marine that's a state of being that you exist in for a short period of time that sticks with you for the rest of your life in some ways well there's also something about the more personal and micro that you write the more universal it is And that a lot of people think it's the opposite. They try to write for everybody and as a result, end up writing for nobody. But if you write for yourself really personally and very specifically, a lot of people end up finding that and relating to it. And I think that's what you did, you know, that it is just your experience, but damn, is it relatable and more universal than if you tried to write, you know, let me write poetry about the Marine Corps, you know, like it it wouldn't have been the sad, the same effect. Um, I want to... It's funny. I just want to make this one comment on original sin it, 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 because of the, the masculinity that and the issues with masculinity that it brings up. It reminded me of a book that a buddy of mine got me in 94. Um, that was a big picture book, big like coffee table book about the Marines. I think it was even called Marines or something. It was just a very, you know, uh, um, I want to say propagandistic, but it was it was very pro Marine Corps and it was all about Marines and everything from, you know, boot camp through all the different facets of the Marine Corps. And I remember one of the descriptions, they said, um, and this is 94, you know, this is before 9-11. This is before a lot of this stuff had entered, um, you know, war had kind of entered the the mainstream culture. Yeah. And uh, and I remember that it said in, in the prologue or forward or something, uh, so many young men can't find a challenge. Um, or a worthwhile adventure anymore. And for most, for those men, they find it in the Marine Corps. And that really never changed. And that's probably been true since the inception of the Marine Corps. But so much of your book is about that original sin of needing to experience that and seeing the extreme result of that. And I want to then ask you, because part of that conflict, part of that juxtaposition of finding the, the worthwhile fight and having those experiences that you lay out in original sin is then compromised by not getting a combat action ribbon 
talk about what that means and talk about how that drives so much of the work in this book. Um, uh, it's, a, it's a hard one to, to dig into, not because it's hard for me to talk about. It's just like I'm so far past like giving a fuck about a one inch piece of cloth and metal. And it, oh, that's it, good. Yeah. Yeah. And I think everyone should get the fuck over it because, you know, like we were all told to stick around long enough. You're going to see it. And, right. um, you know, God willing, I hope this shit doesn't continue to escalate, but I got two years left on IRR and, um, I don't trust anyone in the Russian, American, Chinese, Europe. I don't trust any of the world governments right now to not continue to escalate this fucking thing in the Ukraine. Um, and I'm not going to sit here and like spouse my opinions. I, I think it's obviously bad, but it's like, I don't think it's America's fight. I think we've gotten involved in way too many fights, but it's, it's probably going to escalate because the people who lead are, are the least fit among us and they're psychophants and, and they're, they're just, you've seen it in how Afghanistan ended. It's, it's a business to them. They don't fucking care. And it's, um, you know, I know so many people who have messaged me and said, I would give my car back for just one of my buddies to be alive today. And it's sure, but it's a, it's a culture that is first and foremost designed around war fighting in the Marine Corps. They tell you, you are the supported or the supporting, right? Mm-hmm. And really, truly the only people who are the supported are 0311 riflemen. Like I was a, I was a machine gunner, 0331. I am not the main effort. I am there to lay down a shit ton of rounds so that they can do what they got to do, which is get really fucking personal with people like bayonet distance to people if they have to and do the job. Um, and you go through boot camp, whether you're going to be admin or, or you're a goddamn recon contract going, you know, straight to, you know, BRC right after this, you're all they're teaching you about are major battles. Right. Um, and sure, they'll tell you who Ofame was and they'll talk about, you know, this one or two, like, you know, hey, a woman did this first and then uh, some of that shit. But mostly the history of the Marine Corps is we were started in a bar. We conscripted young men who just really wanted to fight. And then we have been fighting everywhere that the U.S. government could send us for a long, long, long time. Um, and we've been the best at it. And that and in, is and in short bursts because you can't let Marines do twelve months in country. You got to no. keep them at six months at yeah. most. Yeah, these days it's six months, but who knows? Uh, they're you know, I don't know what deployments were like back in the days of Tripoli and all that. But um, <laughs> well, right, right. Think, when you study Nothing Marine Corps, history, they they tend to solve the problem pretty fucking quick wherever they show up. Um, but that's that's it, and that's the only thing, and that's that should always be the only thing. Um, and every every little thing in the Marine Corps dress uniform, when you learn all the history of it, ties back to some battle or some moment, and it has to do with war. And then you hit your infantry unit, right? And 1st Battalion, 6th Marines had done nothing but combat deployments from the beginning of the global war on terror until 2014. So my senior Marines were the first generation to not go to combat. They did a mu which for everyone is a Marine Expeditionary Unit. They put a battalion on a bunch of ships. They float around. They drop off in some places. And they do some training. Mews can very quickly turn into combat deployments. You're on call. 1-8 was on a Mew when they went to Kabul. Right. My seniors, for whatever reason, did not. But when they showed up to the unit, they were trained 
by combat veterans who were trained by combat veterans, by combat veterans, going all the way back to 2002, right? And 1-6 was the main effort in Marja, which was one of the major battles in the surge in Afghanistan. Um, there's an HBO documentary about it. They kicked ass. Um, so it's a unit where the 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 unit and the the, the history of 1-6 goes back to World War One, where one of only a few units that wears that French forage on the collar, which just mm. absolutely makes the blues and, and greens pop sexy as fuck. But um, it's a, you get there and it's like, this is the unit it's called one six hard, right? I make a lot of references to hard yeah. in the, but that's it, named after a captain, a company commander they had called John the hard Hughes who took shrapnel to the leg and had bones sticking out of his shin and still continued to fight and lead troops in world war one. When you show a unit and you hear a story like that, you're like, fuck, I have a yeah. lot to Well, th- so that touches on kind of a big point of this, which is, I-, I think for those that are tempted to make a political hay out of this, you know, there, there's a, a conflict uh, between the micro and the macro. Um, this poetry is very much looking at it from the micro. It's what is the individual warfighter's experience and the tip of the spear warfighter maybe not as tip of the spear as 0311 if, if that's what you know you you still prioritize as, as the most supported aspect of, of marine ground combat forces i mean but, we're right we're right there but, with them yeah i, I mean i mean I'm, I'm splitting hairs but point being i uh, i think there's a lot that you can make of that personal experience. And there, it's important to understand the experience of that sharp end of the spear. That said, there's, it's also a very narrow aperture and it doesn't encompass, you know, the entire war fighting capability of the military. And I think that's where uh, people that necessarily want to draw, want to extrapolate the micro and apply it to the macro run into problems because it is one aspect of the warfighting capability, and yeah. you can't necessarily make policy decisions based on that, unless you just believe war in general should never be fought for any reason. But if if if, and I I think most people of goodwill would agree at some point war may very well be a necessity, and if war is ever a necessity, then you need somebody up there with a physical capability of waging it, and that is, I mean, the Marine Infantry embodies that perhaps more than any other unit in the military. So I think, I think that's where sometimes um, I, I could see people not making that distinction, especially a civilian population. Um, but to me, that's what stood out is, is the, the gut level reaction of seeing a Marine's experience, especially the garrison experience. Um, you know, and that's something that I think is really important to understand about the culture. Talk a little bit about that because I mean, the references, and it, it's always jarred me when I've read your poetry and then you're like, and so then, yeah, this dude ended up in a coma after getting smacked in the head with a pipe. Like, yeah. That's that's some serious shit. And, and that goes to the point that you make that, that the Marine Corps is kind of a gang. It's kind of a, a legal gang. So talk about that garrison environment and what, how that affected you. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of wrap up this one thing about the, the car though, is that it's um my, my seniors were the first ones to not get it. And they had this like, obsession over it because it was the thing they didn't have and it made a lot of them feel invalid and that got passed down to us and then that got passed down again right 
I was in my unit for three months and then they picked Charlie company and they pulled a cat platoon, a combined anti-armor team. So anti-tank missile men and heavy machine gunners mounted on trucks. They picked the best NCOs. And they said, pick your best juniors. You are attaching to Charlie. You guys are attaching to this task force. You're going to Syria in like a month. And that was like, you think like I'm a Marine, I'm ready. And I was like, go fucking trained. Like this is a lot really quick. And I went there and I, I, I did a good job. Um, at least that's what my Lieutenant said. Um, but I didn't get the car either. And we came back and everyone was either yeah. like, Oh, these guys think they're tough. Cause they went to Syria or it's like, Oh, they went to Syria and they didn't even get a car. And right. I, I'm just sitting there and I'm like, so do 4,000 miles of patrol right. in Syria, you know, going up to the, 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 the ass crack of Raqqa, right. Is that not, is it not valid? Cause I don't have a fucking ribbon. And it really right. like, I, I was very much in that mindset where I was like, shit. And I, I wanted to go back. I wanted to go finish that job. Right. And that is kind of what tore my relationship apart. Cause I was like, I didn't get it. And I don't know if I'm going to get it regular infantry. Like I'm going to go Marsoc. And she was like, maybe you should pump the brakes. Um, you know, maybe you shouldn't throw your whole life into this thing. Like, let's just take it one year at a time. And, uh, you know, that went the way it went, but like the feeling of being over there was addicting. Cause it's so, yeah simple it's easy it was the best it was some of the best times i've ever had in the marine corps yeah Um, because you are deployed you are you are at the tip of the spear and you're like i am doing my job i'm making a difference or at least i feel like i am well this is this is where the rubber meets the road this is the actual this is what you signed up for this didn't sign up to be in the fucking garrison yeah i i remember being a kid watching the invasion of iraq kick off from my grandparents house and seeing marines and turrets behind a 50 cal and being like i want to be there fast forward however many years it was i'm lead vehicle gunner behind a 50 cal with three with two thousand rounds behind me just ready to keep reloading and, and eating and to never get to do that yeah it was frustrating but I, I had to learn how to make make meaning out of it more than that and then to segue into garrison this is where my career took a wrong turn as i ended up spending way too much fucking time in garrison way too much right so when you're a boot your life is very structured very controlled you got seniors up your ass 24 7 you can't get into trouble you 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 really can't you don't have the time to do it um you know they're just making you hate life um i had a three four month phase i deployed i came back and we reintegrated into the unit and then the unit did their full six month deployment. So we were just stuck on Lejeune, one company by itself as a remain behind element. Normally a remain behind element that doesn't deploy is guys who got in trouble, guys who got injured, uh, or just guys that don't have enough time on contracts. So we had all of those guys from the battalion, some of whom were some shit bags. Um, they integrated with us. And we would go to the field twice a month. Like they kept this training, but really it was like, Hey, we're off work by one. And like, dude, we're left to our own devices. So we, and it wasn't just me, it was everyone drank a lot, like a lot, a lot. And, um, you know, a lot of fights happened amongst each other. Um, there was a period of time where we were getting in brawls with Tutu, another unit, uh, their, their nickname is the warlords, although they were known as the drug lords on Lejeune and I'll let everybody figure out the rest of that story but they would come over and like 
you know, they were like two streets over. They would come and they would like find somebody at the smoke pit hanging out and just like deck them and start a fight and then run back to their barracks. And we chased them once and we got jumped. And then um, I had a senior that got like knocked out over there. We had to buddy carry him back. His blood alcohol content was 0.4. I mean, we were just getting shit housed on weekends. And it was not a, it wasn't, it wasn't an environment conducive to any of us moving in a positive direction. Um, so then we did like a two month thing in Latvia. Um, and we had leave after that. And instead of going home, I decided to go to Florida and that's when me and my girlfriend broke up and it just kind of continued to spiral from there. But like you alluded yeah. to about the guy getting hit with a pipe, we had a 100th anniversary celebration. I'd been in the unit maybe a month. Right. So we all put on our, our, our alphas. We're all dressed up. Right. We go to the field house. They had a lot of beer, either it bottled or kegs or whatever. But we, we drank that motherfucker dry in two hours, dude. We went back to the barracks and normally like sergeant majors and, and battalion command would not uh, be OK with a bunch of kegs in the barracks. But they were like, anything goes, man, we're we're going to party. And um, it turned into Alpha, Bravo, and Charlie getting in a three-way brawl out in the quad. I mean, it looked like something out of movies where, like, you know, medieval, they would just charge each other and, like, masses of people. That's what it was. And then our first sergeant in weapons was like, let's go show them what weapons is about. So, like, we uh, weapons just jumped in and started just fighting anyone and everyone. And there was a guy who got hit with a lead pipe, and he was put in a coma. And then the guy who did it was, you know, went to – the break for it and it was like how did it escalate like that yeah, like, yeah. how in the fuck did that happen it doesn't seem right well it's funny because it, it it actually explains i think a phenomenon that you you probably have seen and can relate to but certainly one i've noticed where a lot of marines especially infantry seem like they either go hard into the marine culture like after they get out like really pro, 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 or they do a complete 180 and become abject pacifists at all costs. And I wonder how much that is attributed to kind of, for lack of a better word, a savage culture at that lower enlisted level where when that's the norm, your psyche can only go in one of two directions. Like you can't, you can't just kind of maintain an equilibrium in that environment because the group think is so strong. Does that make sense? I mean, it is. And it's, it's a powerful thing. So like I referenced guns up a lot in the book and they told us like, well, guns up when I was in infantry training battalion, the way the Marine Corps does it is you specialize in some role of the infantry. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the first month is all basics, patrolling, how to dig into a defense, all the different organic weapon systems. Right. And then after a month, they'll split everyone into riflemen, machine gunners, mortarmen, all the different tasks. Right. So when you go do those three weeks of training to be a machine gunner, a lot of that is cultural indoctrination as well. Our instructors, you know, in the, in the squad bay um, was like, everyone go buy a mouthpiece. We would do jujitsu. We would box. Like, it's like no one in here is going to be able to go to their unit without having said, I've been in a fight. Sure. Uh, And he, so when you're, when you're on the gun line, right. Machine guns operate in groups. It's a, it's a gang, it's a unit. So, at no, there should always be at least one machine gun, if not two firing, right? And you'll fire and burst. So like one and two will shoot, three and four will shoot. And if one has to reload, you got to yell that over the sound of machine guns. 
so one of the other guns knows to pick up the rate of fire, right? But when your gun is back loaded in the fight, you yell gun up. Um, if someone yells guns up at the barracks, that means I need all the machine gunners on deck because there's a fight happening. And if you don't show up, you're a, you're you're out. Like nobody's going to trust you anymore. No one's going to look at you and be like, yes, my guy, he's got my back. But I remember him telling us about that. And this machine gun instructor, he's a sergeant. He's talking about this battalion level brawl he got in when he was at whatever unit he was at. And he's just talking about it. Like it was just one of the best nights of his life. And I'm listening and I'm yeah. just like, that's insane. But, um, well, you know, I, let's, uh, let's, let's talk. Sorry. Uh, um, sorry. Go ahead. Finish your thought. I was going to say, I wrote a piece on the Patreon. It's long form. It's called these things happen. And it's about my experience with a couple of different like fights and, and things that broke out and, and watching them happen. Um, and someone commented, cause I shared an excerpt on my Instagram. Someone was like, why are you glorifying this? I'm like, literally the title is these things happen. I'm not, glorifying. Right. Right. I'm just telling you that it does. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not for or against it. It's just part of the culture. And I don't, I, I think in a way it does serve a purpose. Um, I think Marines should be people who want to fight. So. In the book, uh, I want to go to the poem, The Bus, because uh, I think anybody that's ever joined the military in any capacity can relate to just the logistics of just getting to basic and, and the dynamic of the recruits on the bus. And the one line that I wanted to highlight was, you say, nervous chatter, boastful laughter um, as the bus rolls up and, and the recruits are right there. Um who were you? Were you, were you quiet? Were you talking? Were you loud? Were you extroverted? Was, Who were you on I the was, bus? I was 26 years old. I was just to myself. Like I had talked to a lot of the kids like throughout the mm -hmm. trip out there, but, and I had a couple guys that I left like from my own recruit station and we, we knew each other from the delayed entry program. So we would talk, but when we were on the bus, I was just kind of in, I was to myself and kids really kept talking. Like, what do you think it's going to be like? Is he be like this? And I was just like, it's going to suck. They're like, well, no, I can't. I'm like, no, it's going to suck. It's going to be the worst three months you've ever experienced. Just like, it is what it is. It like it, the only way through, and this is something Marine Corps teaches you is the only way through something is through it. You just suck it the fuck up. So shut up. Enjoy the last couple of moments of peace and quiet. You're going to get like, you know, and they, you know, cause they're all excited and they're all nervous, this and that. And I remember when they finally were like, all right, everyone heads down. I don't know if it, what it's like in other boot camps, but when you, it's on an island, people have tried to escape the island by swimming off of it. It's, they literally tell you the only way off of this island is as a Marine. Doesn't matter how many times you get injured or whatever, like you have to make it through this. And that's it. So, you know, they're like heads down, they put your head down so that you don't remember the route on or off the island because <laughs> they drive you in like all these circles. And then you finally pull up and then you hear like, and you're out and you're on the yellow footprints and then uh, happening. and you're doing that thing that you've seen in the, you know, the PBS documentary that I mentioned in the, yeah. in the back of the book, right? Yeah. I remembered that quote and I wanted to use it to write the summary. I went, look it up. Like I'm watching it on YouTube. I'm like, Oh, this is that same fucking documentary I watched 
you know, when I was finishing college, I didn't know what the fuck I wanted to do. And I'm and I, it, it's funny, like to this day, having gone through and come out the other side of that meat grinder, watching that documentary and still feeling like the same awe and pride. It's like, yeah, some of it is bullshit and propaganda, but so much of it is true. It is a culture and there's nothing else like it. And you're either in it or you're not. And, you know, when I, I wear my Marine Corps hat, uh, I got it's a woodland, you know, hat with a gold EGA on it. And mm-hmm. I wear it when I'm at the gun store. And when guys walk in and we get to talk about the Marine Corps, I end up like being like, I have to get with another customer, but I could just talk to you all fucking day. Yeah. Yeah. You know. You know, there, for some reason, your book brought up a defensiveness in me when I was reading it because I was picturing civilians reading it and no, no one specifically, um, but just kind of a generic civilian guy, um, you know, shaking his head, tisk tisking, going, oh, gosh, Marines, boy, this just sounds like a savage, brutal existence. And of course it is, but not understanding or, or keeping at arm's length the um the pride that comes along with it and which you do start capture but i wonder if some civilians might be might not be able to get past the brutality of it and what i well one of the thoughts i had while i was reading the book was you know there's a lot of toxicity in the civilian world too <laughs> and i'm not sure it's a different kind of toxicity i, I, can, um, think of, I can think of nothing more toxic than weak men who stand for nothing and who go 100% with the flow and the grain and don't question and just uh, let it happen to them. Whatever, yes. whatever, the, whatever the government's deciding to do this week, it's definitely the right thing because the government told me so, right? I read something the other day where it's like the only people who, have, who really question anything are people who are type A and secure in themselves because when people who like really can't stand up for themselves or are afraid of not fitting in, they're not secure in their own selves. When they see everyone parroting something on social media, they go with that because they are literally afraid of disagreeing with people. That is how you take control of a population overnight. You make everyone weak and uh, unable to think for themselves or stand for themselves. Like that's, that's my opinion. Right. So yeah. talked about how they're going to go one direction or the other. It's like, yeah, but they're going to be fucking opinionated and they're not going to care what you think. And it's like, you can tisk tisk me all you want. You weren't there. No Marine signs up with the intention of, uh, we don't know what the culture is going to be like when we hit a unit, we sign up with the intention of these are the guys who go to the front. These are the toughest ones. I want to challenge myself to that level. And hopefully, hopefully my government is not abusing the power of the Marine Corps to invade countries for no fucking reason. But the Marine's job is not to ask why it's not to set foreign policy. It's to say, if someone from this country has to go, I will go. Right. And, and that's, and that purposefulness is I think what's so important. And, and, and that's what I think some people, I could see them missing it, not because you don't capture it, but because I think, you know, they get wrapped up. They might get wrapped up in the um, superficial brutality of some of the stuff you talk about. And I, so I just kind of wanted to foot stomp that, that, hey, you know, y- you describe, you know, that masculine, let's call it the masculine problem that you keep, that's, that kind of runs as a theme throughout all the writing um, in the book, that 
you know, yeah, there's a little bit of a drift. There's a little bit of emotional baggage and, and all that, that a lot of people have when they join any branch of the military, but finding that purpose, maybe sometimes through not perfect means through maybe a very brutal military experience, but Hey, it's, it's direction and it's not for the worst of reasons. So there, there is some saving grace in that. I think, I don't know. That's my defensive take on it because I, I, again, I'm being neurotic and just thinking of civilians that might not fully grasp that they might, I, I, you've told me and other people have told me, they're like, you know, this poetry, like it, it bridges a gap or it's yeah. like, I, I don't, it wasn't written for them. Um, and if it, and if it, you know, there, I, and I, there are people from the civilian walk that read the stuff that I put on Instagram and they'll message me and they'll, they'll I'll talk to them about it, but it's like, I, I'm not a Marine that had a human experience. I'm a human that had a Marine experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, I have, I still had to get out of this organization and go back to Louisiana and become Mason Rodrigue again. And yeah. Figure out fuck that person is yep. after doing that. And what do I keep and what do I leave behind? Right. If, if I was still in the Marine Corps, I would not be the same guy that this book reflects. I, w- I, I would have matured. I would be a Sergeant by now. I would be trying to steer and influence the culture in a different and better yeah. direction, but everyone has to go through that point where they're a private first class and a Lance corporal and they are fucking up and they're not navigating things. Well, you, you don't, you, it's a shock. It's a massive shock to your system and your identity and your life. And it takes a little while to get your feet under you and be able to like handle being a Marine. That isn't also like a fucking jackass. Well, what's on, you know, that that's well said. Uh, What's unfair. (laughs) And I'm saying this in a, out of pure jealousy is that you managed to capture a whole lot of this while you were still in. So while most people are looking and life is going 80 miles an hour past them and they're keeping up with the op tempo or the training tempo, um, you actually were putting pen to paper and finding a way to capture a lot of that, which is, I think, incredibly invaluable and enviable because of those little nuanced moments that seven, 10, 15 years from now, you're not going to remember as clearly and you were getting it right in that moment. Yeah. I mean, it was very much my coping mechanism. So, I mean, it's instead of going talk to a therapist, which nobody ever does while they're active duty is God forbid, you know, you be honest and go get some help. Um, I had every one of these poems is a conversation between me and myself about, Hey, what, what's really happening here? What's the truth? When did you, oh, sorry, you're good. Yeah, I'm just saying like, that's, that's what these poems are. They are small conversations between me and myself in private where I'm being honest about what I feel, who I am, how I got here, what this experience means to me. Um, And then I, you know, and it was was all written on a notes app. I, you know, tuck my phone back in my pocket and get back on the gun and, and do my fucking job. I can't remember if I asked this the last time we talked, so I'll ask it again. When did you actually start writing for, outside of school? Like, did you write before you joined the Marines? Was that ever a, me- a coping mechanism or even um, just a pleasurable mechanism that you used? 
I've been writing very strongly opinionated Facebook posts for about a decade now. Okay. Uh, but creatively, were you writing anything? No, no, really no. Uh, writing, it was something that had always interested me somewhat. I was a journalism major for a semester or two, and then I was like, I don't want to do that as a career. Um, but I, and I was interested in writers, and I was interested in, in thought. It was, writers are the best writers are people who are deep thinkers and they come to their own conclusions. They're not just, I think so many journalists today are just paid propagandists, to be honest with you. Um, a, a lot of what journalism used to be is, is gone. Um, I don't know that it ever was, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that's, that's, um, you know, I have a whole take on that that I won't totally digress on, but yeah, I, I think, I think there's certainly some to that, but with no, but, been interested in, in good writing and yeah and I, I read a lot and i probably read way too many war memoirs and that's why i ended up in the fucking rank war instead of doing something else um but you didn't recreate did you read creative stuff did you read a lot of fiction or poetry or anything like that or was it always <laughs> first person memoirish i was never a fiction guy but poetry i always liked just because of the ability to capture something big mm. in something small if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Who did you read? Do you remember? Do you remember oh, whose poetry yeah. you read? When, when people are like, oh, have you read X, Y, or Z? If you know this part? And I'm just like, I don't actually. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm not that guy. I can't quote any of it. I, I'm not that big into it. But I I know like when I've read stuff and it's stuck with me. Like Invictus is a great one. Um, what's uh, Rage Against the Dying of the Light? Uh, right. Right. Those are, those are amazing poems. Yeah. Um, I mean, but we're going back to like junior year English. Sure. I don't remember. But that's a huge point, though, because one of the things that stands out with you as a writer, and you you and I have talked about this before, um, your voice as a writer is incredibly strong. And, you know, we've always talked about you doing the belt fed poetry and all this, but it really is true. And that's, you know, any writer and any editor and any knowledgeable reader will tell you the hardest thing for any writer to get is their voice. And you have never struggled for that because you're, I think your identity, as I, as I told you, this is the first time. I mean, your, your identity is, it's so wrapped up. You are, you are, you're on brand with everything you do. So yeah, you're Mason. Yep. You play rugby. Yep. You played football. Yep. You win the Marine Corps. Yep. You were a machine gunner and you fucking write like it. And as a result, there there's not a lot of casting about and trying to find your voice. And it's almost like, I don't know if this is the greatest way to say it, but it's almost like you didn't need to read a lot of poetry. You never needed to be a student of the form or you know get really nerded out on it because all you're trying to do is mainline what's in your head and get that out in the best possible way. Does that make sense? Yeah, 100%. This, I love the term belt-fed poetry because I'm like, that's what this is. This, I, and I don't... And, I, and like I said, I wrote this so, so much of it was written for me. I'm not trying to dress. Yeah. Up. Yeah. I, and like, I like, uh, I, I have some things that are uh, people who like study poetry are going to notice like a couple of things I do. I like alliteration. I have certain rhyme schemes I keep falling into. Um, I, I have some themes that pop up throughout the book, but like, it's not refined in a way where you read it and you're like, this guy's definitely got a master's in this. It's like, no, this is just somebody who had a lot to fucking say. And, uh, you know, uh, to me, I learned more about 
poetry from listening to hip hop than I did from, you know, junior year English. Um, the editing process with Keith, boy, uh, the notes were like uh, line breaks, stanzas, this, that. And I was just like, what's a line break? He's like, yeah. it's when you break up the line, moron. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, it was. Yeah. Uh, Talk about that. Did, did you find yourself? Did you find yourself developing as a writer as he was giving you his feedback? Oh, I got so much better just from working with Keith um, yeah. on this. And, and Keith kind of said the same thing, right? He got back to me with all of it. And he's like, there's some things we're going to work on. He's like, but this is so raw and so honest and real. And like, it's, and I think that's, that's harder than being good at writing. I really think it for a lot of people, I think it is. I, there's, I'm not hiding anything. Like it's all out there. There are mm-hmm. moments where I think about it and I'm like, this is so fucking personal and it's going to be, uh, and it's on presale on Amazon and it's almost, <laughs> it's almost scary. But then I remind myself that I'm not fucking important. And this is kind of going to be in a pretty niche community already. And, um, and there's nothing I've admitting to that every Marine hasn't already done or done worse. So I, I totally disagree with almost everything you just said. I think it's not going to be in a niche community at all. I think it's going to be, I think you're going to, this is just my, I'm just going to call this right now. I think you're going to find this is going to hit a much wider audience than you thought. And I think also, I, I actually think it's easier than a lot of writing because you already have the stuff that you want to say. It's, it's kind of funny, but you know, you've, you've had that life. And you've had the emotional, emotionally significant events to mine, and they're fresh enough in your mind that you're able to mine them right now in a very real and raw way that it is so much harder to do that a decade from now, or if you haven't had those emotionally significant events. So I think actually you're tapping into it. I mean, you're hitting a sweet spot creatively that I think is enviable. And I think you're going to see, I I think it's going to have a huge impact if I'm being perfectly honest. Well, I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> I guess time will tell. Um, yeah, we'll see. We'll, we'll, we'll put a steak dinner on it. Hey, I wanted to ask you a, a really minute question just for one second, but it was it was in my notes here yeah. on the book. Uh, the numbering of the poems, whose idea was that and why? Oh, man. Uh, I wish I could take credit for it. It's designed to look like a field manual. That's what I thought. Okay. Yeah. And that was, uh, that was not my idea. That was... Um, I think that was also Keith. Keith and Tyler are, they're professionals. And I'm so glad I didn't pursue self-publishing. Um, and, and I, you know, submitted, there was a time where I, I didn't, one, I didn't know either of them yet, but I was like, in my head, I was like, is it good enough to be submitted to them? Like, or is it, should I just, I'd seen Justin Egan self-publish a lot and do great with that, but it just helps to have two other sets of eyes and two guys who have, been doing veteran poetry specifically for a little while and and i'm also going to come out and say like they don't want to just only publish shit about being a veteran or but but right but they only publish veteran writers and what's the first thing most veterans write about that before they move on to anything else you got to blow the carbon out you got to get you gotta, that you gotta, yeah. you gotta clean yeah. the you gotta clean this the system you know yeah what I mean? yeah 100 um, tyler is a he's a whiz with formatting i mean the book looks awesome i I'm so happy with it. I, I, you know, I meant to ask you, um, I, I skipped over it early on, um, cause I want to stay on Tyler and Keith for a second. Um, and I want to start with the artwork of the book that I think Tyler 
was responsible for. Uh, how much input did you have in the cover? In the cover? All of it. All of it. That cover is uh, like, so Tyler is the one who actually formatted it on a computer. Okay. But that skull is uh, my tattoo off my shoulder. Um, I set up a tripod and took a picture and then I did like some editing and made it like black and white, gray. I sent that to him. I said, put this, I said, it's going to be a black cover, put this skull in a red frame. And then I uh, looked up how Pantera did their, uh, yeah, you can see it now looking at Rock Eater. Don't That's you? right. That's I looked right. up how Pantera did the font for Pantera on their album covers. And then I got a ruler, right, and marked it out. Um, so that it was all symmetrical. It was all nice and squared off. Um, and I sent that to him and I'm like, this, this is the cover. And um, originally the idea was he had drawn it up and it's cool. And we're going to make a t-shirt out of it, but it's a, uh, it's a, it's an MRE box that's like busted open and it's full of like a bunch of really big rocks. That's and I'm like, cool. Yeah. And, and I'm like, you know what? That's great. But for what this book is, it needs to look like a fucking thrash metal album cover one, because if you want Marines to read poetry, it's got to look like they're not reading poetry. If they're sitting on duty, right. It's got to look like, uh, it's got to look badass. Um, rule number one. And you then, talk- uh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, but no, but so, but I was sitting next to Tyler while we were doing this. I went up to Dallas in early January and we kind of talked on some things and, um, I watched him take that picture and then whatever the term is for how he made it look like that. Cause it was the picture of my arm and now it has this like awesome, like kind of white ashy look to it. And it's just, it's sick. But, um, Hey, our- oh, sorry, sorry. Uh, see, this is, this is why we need the camera. Cause I never know when you're actually finished with a thought or, or when you're not. No, it's all good. <laughs> um, the unit logo for first battalion six Marines is a red diamond with a white star in an Indian chief. Uh, mm-hmm. Six regiment, much like I want to say, Second Infantry Division in uh, in the army. Yeah, has the Indian head. That symbology of the the star with the Indian chief. So, um, and it's because they were all together in World War One. That became a unit insignia for them. So, like Tom Schumann's unit, um, three five. Uh, he's going back to it, but who we originally was with, they all have that. And that's all on the West coast and the East coast. It's six regiments. So first, second, and third battalion, if you see dudes on Lejeune and they have like, they'll all have some type of Indian chief tattoo and you can just tell that guys in six regiment. Yeah. Um, it's, there's a poem in there called ink uh, at the end about mm-hmm. tattoo. like similar to like how gangs are like, there's certain tattoos that give away almost everything about, your unit, your job, what you do. Like you can, I can read a Marine up and down by what tattoos he's got. Um, it's, it's a funny juxtaposition because you have the poem about ribbons and how much, you know, a person's resume, like anybody in the military, you know, their resume is on their uniform. And then later on you have it about the ink and about how basically you replicate that on your body as well. I thought that was an interesting juxtaposition. I didn't, uh, I didn't plan on that. I just, I didn't think you did. I, th- I, I think that's, but that's, what's so awesome about it is that all those unintentional themes, because you're just doing what's true to you. Yeah. Just what they came up at different times, but there was one, I, I wanted to do uh, an Instagram post. I had written it 
And then I wanted to do an Instagram post and I had a bunch of my friends. I just basically put on Instagram, like send me pictures of your Marine Corps tattoos, whatever you got. So it was like a one minute video and it just went from picture to picture to picture. It was all black and white and it was like really cool. Um, and it, it goes right with the poem because it's like, you can tell so much about people by what they're willing to get inked on their body permanently. And there are times now where I'll, I'll see myself in the mirror and it's like, I'm going to have an Indian chief skull and a, a, a belt of ammunition tattooed around my arm forever over four years of my life. Um, you know, somebody yeah. called gang tat when you get 0331, 0331s, 0311s and 41s all get, they get that down their tricep. And when I was up at PB Abate, um, I think it was Max. He saw, he said, Oh, you got the gang tat. I was like, it's basically what it is, man. Um, I'm looking through the, all these poems, all the different notes that I had in here. And there's, you know, it's funny because so many of my notes were just me riffing off of what you had said. It wasn't like a question for you. It's just me kind of going, Oh shit, this is what that makes me think of. And there's so many moments in there that, um, and I just want to throw a couple out. Um, You can comment on them or not. It, It doesn't really matter. It's more just, me unburdening myself of uh, of some of these ideas, but the love affair with your 240 Bravo. Yeah. What firearm will he ever own or operate again that can stir the feelings and passion and lust in his heart? Because unlike, as you point out, unlike the 0311 who can get a street legal firearm, what's the, what's the poor machine gunner supposed to do? He never get he never gets that crush again. I have I have like six AR-15s and none of them quite do it for me. There's a company that made something called a forced reset trigger, and I don't know if you've seen the video of me shooting it on Instagram, but it basically legally meets the definition of semi-automatic because the trigger does reset every a fully automatic weapon. You hold it down and the trigger never resets. It just releases the sear and it just keeps cycling. People who don't know guns don't know what we're talking about, but a forced reset trigger. The trigger will reset very subtly against your finger every round, but you don't have to let go of the trigger. So it's very close to fully automatic, but legally is not. And I own one and it is, uh, I love it. it. It gives me that feeling of just like ripping, you know, a shit ton of ammo at once. It's a, it's a thrill. And it's, if you've never been behind a gun like that, like it's hard to explain to you, like, what kind of rush that is. And then operating it as part of a team, right? When you have six guns online, you got a squad leader and, a, and six team leaders and you're all communicating it. It's like a fucking orchestra of gunfire. It's awesome. And that's why I say, I think, I think folks that, you know, if you don't know, you don't know, but it, yeah. it's kind of like, you can, you can read the words, but you're not going to hear the music. Because uh, if you haven't lived it totally, but hopefully reading the words alone gets you very close to feeling the music, uh, even if you're not feeling it maybe as deeply. Um, and and I'll, I'll tell you, I don't think anybody's words could get you closer because, again, it's that belt fed nature, the way you write it and and the kind of bumper sticker like phrases that kind of stick in people's minds. I think I, I think it's the closest people can get to feeling like they're doing it without doing it. Um, I want to go to your piece on Syria, and I want to look specifically at your poem, Syrian Sunsets. Uh, This is one of the parts I I highlighted. This is the coolest you're ever going to be. You're in someone else's country patrolling their streets with heavy machine guns. 
you will never be this badass again. <laughs> that's the fucking truth. And that's what I think is um, so easy for people to miss or gloss over is the sense of accomplishment and the sense of that you're, you're doing kind of what everything's been building towards that. Uh, and, and as a young man, or even sometimes as a slightly older man, um, doing that is uh, incredibly rewarding and it's tough to find something that's that climactic in any other walk of life. Yeah, it was uh, it, it was climactic and and kind of like we talked about earlier because we did not get a get combat. It was yes, yes. There was this feeling when we got home of like no one wanted to leave. We left like two months early um, because of some logistical reasons, um, but we were at pretty much the end of of operations in Syria on a large scale and. Um, you know, no one wanted to go home. We went to Kuwait and there was talk of like possibly going to Yemen for a follow-up mission. And honestly, now I'm really glad we didn't because I am more educated on what's going on in Yemen. It's just Saudi Arabia committing a genocide. And I don't want to be part of that. Um, I don't want our government to be part of that, but we support it. Um, But at the time, at that moment, we were in Kuwait and I was just like, send me anywhere, but back to North Carolina. Send me to Afghanistan, send me to Iraq, send me to yeah. fucking send me to China. I don't give a fuck. Yeah. I wanted I wanted the ride to keep going. I didn't want to get off. Um yeah, you I had was, combat blue balls. Yeah, I was in the yeah. best shape of my life too. Yeah. I mean, I, mm. when I wasn't on patrol, I was in the gym. I, there was a five the five mile perimeter on the base we were on. I ran it every fucking day. We were doing McMap. I had an eight pack. I was fucking strongish. I was in the best, I was the most combat ready. I've ever been. I was in in that moment. I was completely fulfilling everything I signed up to do. Um, so it's right. It's like I was, I was that fucking guy. I had the I had the power of a a, a Madus in my hands at all fucking times. And you know, well, it kind of it culminates, I think, with the very next poem. And I want to read that section to you when you're talking about refugee kids and you're talking yeah. about the kids that joined the Marines. initially as refugee kids. And you say refugee kids in the wake of postmodern American society here, trying to connect with the ancient warrior ways of masculinity disappointed by the peacetime infantry. Does it keep you up at night after all you gave to the core, the orphaned refugee kids of Syria still know more about you more, no more than you about war. Um, And, and that I think hints at the devastating kind of gut punch of that combat blue balls of that all that prep time all that that potential climax and um and then have the leash jerked back yeah and i mean it's this is a thing that most a lot of gwat veterans have spoken to this even once we did get their combat the fact that we leave before the war ends for a lot of people who served in our generation it's like just sticks with you because you're like i went there I did, I did some of the, I did some heavy lifting, but I left and this is still going on years later. So it, it turned into, I feel like so much of our generation feels like they have unfinished business there because they didn't finish it themselves. If that makes sense. Yeah. It a hundred percent makes sense. Absolutely. 
I've heard Tyler speak about it the same way. Tyler was uh, injured on his deployment to Afghanistan and had to leave early as people who get injured do. And a lot of people who had were injured and left country felt that they're like, my guys are still over there. I, I should be there too. Like it, it's the, I, I don't, I'm trying to think of the last generation of U.S. service members that saw their war through all the way to the end. And it's like World War II. No one else is like, who, who were really the last service members that saw the end of their war and, and did it from beginning? I mean, Korea, uh, you know, Korea, they would. Yeah. You know, and that was relatively short, but, but yeah, it, it's, but I mean, listen, this was a, a long drawn out conflict. I mean, one thing I, I do always say to people in, Oh, you know, it's interesting that already in Ukraine, Russia's lost far more men than America lost in 20 years in Afghanistan. That's um, a real war. It's a it's a real war. Yeah, not to say that not to say that what the U.S. did wasn't a real war, but it turned into the same thing, right? So you look at the invasion of Iraq. The Iraqi forces folded, but what do you think the average? U.S. mail would do if we got invaded. They became insurgents. So now you're not fighting an organized enemy. You're fighting an insurgency. What are the Ukrainian people doing? They're doing what human beings do. What the kind of men I would like in my society are the kind that if someone showed up and invaded my town, we would take up arms. Yeah. I mean, I think I think it's easy to I mean, yeah, I I think there's a lot to that. I think there's also something to be said for Sometimes we confuse the righteousness of tactics with the righteousness of the moral positioning in the use of those tactics. You know, as I always say, if 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 I push an old lady in front of a bus and you push an old lady out of the way of the bus, technically we both pushed an old lady around. But why we did it is incredibly different. And I think sometimes we we tend to lose that when we focus on, you know, insurgency and and declaring that, well, hey, they're just doing what the Minutemen did. Well, yeah, but for very different reasons. Um, and I think sometimes that gets glossed over, but um, I do think there is, I, I, I think you're right. I think, especially when we see in Ukraine, the types of folks that are willing to fight and not run and the unity they have that we haven't always seen in countries where we, we needed the population to take a really belligerent stand yeah, uh, is, is different. And it is a stark contrast. And that's, I think what happens when you're invading a, uh, sovereign and stable nation state versus ones that are not as stable, let's say. Yeah. Um, I, I want to ask you, I, I can't let this go without asking you about um, the troublemaking and the NJP and the effect that it had. I don't think many people can, can appreciate what it's like to get in trouble in the military um, so talk about what that meant to you. And, uh, you know, obviously you've written about it and everyone that reads it will get a pretty good view of it, but it's, uh, it's a significant amount of pain, shame, and I don't know, processing and therapy that kind of has to go into understanding that. So just talk about what that NJP meant to you. If I've, um, if I've ever truly been like, like deeply, like just wanted to like really felt suicidal in my life. It was going through that. Um, uh, it, it is, there's, there's a shame that comes to it. And like, it, it's the, in the Marine Corps, right. We 
Chesty Puller's like, take me to the brig. I want to see the real Marines. And no, oh, you ain't a real Marine until you've been in JP. But like, it's, you know, I was on track to become a meritorious corporal and take on a, a section leader role. And I was, I was being like more or less grooms to be one of the leaders of the platoon when my seniors got out and a lot of them were about to get out at that time. It was that two year mark where there's suddenly a big turn around two years in the infantry for, you know, your corporals and sergeants are going to either get out or go on to the next unit. And there's a transfer transfer of leadership to their junior Marines. It's a big deal. It's why they're so hard on you for the first two years. And you don't really get it until you suddenly have to step into their roles. And then you realize like, all right, big brother was really fucking mean for two years, but this is why, and this is what it, this is what it actually takes to get someone ready to go from being a boot Marine with really no responsibility to being in charge of and responsible for anywhere from four to 12 Marines. It's no small thing. Um, but I, I, I blew that. I lost that. And a DUI costs a lot of money and it, it follows you in some ways. And luckily I, I wasn't, I didn't, you know, blow when I got pulled over and I wasn't convicted. It didn't really like follow me legally or anything, but it's a shameful moment. And I remember it happened in the middle of a, uh, a team leaders course. So the first week was all in class stuff. And I was named um, class commandant for the course, I think, or something. I was basically in charge of the whole thing. Um, and it was just a lot of like smoke session PTs and, and you know, written tests and courses on like team leader team leader level stuff. Right. And I did great. And then I went out of town that weekend, got into trouble, made it back, got my ass chewed out by my first sergeant. And then I was packing up 120 pounds in my ruck and we marched 12 miles to the field. We did three days of patrols in the field and then marched back. Um, you know, we did a field exercise out there. We did, I think like 60 miles in four days. Jesus. And the whole time I'm, I'm out in the woods and I'm like, just, in the middle of like doing this field exercise, I'm like talking to my friends. I'm like, I ruined my fucking life. I'm like, I, I, I blew it, you know? Um, like those were just such dark moments And those guys, like my peers in those moments were there for me in a way that like, I'll never forget. And if any of them are listening to this, like they know who they are, they know what they remember what that moment was like. And there were just certain people around me, some seniors and a lot of my peers who still believed in me because they knew what kind of Marine I was. And they understood that like, this is not the end of, this is not the end for, for me. Um, but we, uh, we came back, we finished the, we did the, the graduation for it. I was named honor grad. And then they're like, Hey, you need to come meet your platoon leadership in the office. So I'm like walking to the office and all the lieutenants in the company are like, Hey, you, you killed it, Rod. You know, like probably like all yeah. pumped on me yeah. and I sit there with my, with my section leaders, my platoon commander, my platoon commander is very much like not as he's, he's bummed about it, but he's yeah. like, we're going to get through this. And then my section leader goes like, Rod, do you have a drinking problem? And I was like, I don't think I drink any more than anybody else. He goes, Rod, a drinking problem is when you drink and then it causes problems in your life. And I was like, yeah, I have a, and in my head, I'm like, yeah, I have a huge fucking drinking problem. I have 
I, I have problems. Like I, you know, and it was just kind of, that was where I was at in that moment. And, um, it was, it was, it was an ultimate low moment. And then, um, I'll jump to this poem. I, I think you'll agree that this, this probably sums it up better than any of them. Um, it's called rotten apple, <laughs> rotten apple, black sheep, reason that my mother weeps cause of all my father's grief promises. I never keep dug a fighting hole far too deep. I made this bed, but I can't sleep. Lost rank, gained shame. The mirror shows who caused my pain. Self-loathing fills my brain. Low life, shit bag. Should have been hit by a frag. Burn out like a cigarette's drag. Hide behind the American flag. Eat the apple, fuck the core. I don't mean it, I want more. Pray they let me stay for four. Long night, black sky, deep dive, don't cry. I want a war so I can die. Um, can I challenge you on that last line? That's where I was. We, do, we do, well, here, here's what I want to ask you. Did you want a war so you could die or did you want a war? So you have a chance to redeem yourself where it counts most. No, I, in that moment, in, in those moments, I wished I had died in combat in Syria. Okay. Really, like that's where I mentally was. Gotcha. Um, that's, that's how I felt about it. Um, I was like, that would have been a much better ending to this story than me coming home and, um, doing all this, you know, gotcha. um, so yeah, that's obviously the darkest part of the book. And then it kind of goes into the rest of the experiences I had in the Marine Corps, which was like, thank God I finally got some junior Marines, um, and a, a purpose again and, and people to train and, and something to do the workup that we did for that deployment, which it was, it was yet another like huge buildup to a no payoff because we went to Okinawa and during COVID we were just locked to Schwab. So first battalion, six Marines won battalion of the quarter three times in 2019 during our workup and battalion of the year for second Marine division. We were the cream of the crop. That unit was so primed. Like every, like we were so good at our job. We were all so cohesive and I was in weapons company. So I supported alpha Bravo and Charlie company on all of their ranges. I saw how all of them performed and some were better than others, but all of them were guys I would gladly like go to a combat zone with. Yeah. Uh, if, if that unit had been sent in like, you know, the height of a surge or something like that, they would have, fucked some people up um i want to talk i'm oh, sorry i want to yeah sorry go ahead no i'm just saying it just it wasn't our time and it's yeah and it was intimate a lot of people have it's like we work so hard we're so good at our jobs we like we're good marines like yeah. why can't we just and, it, and it's something i had to talk to my juniors about it's like look i went to syria like i don't have a car either you can't sit here and throw a pity party for yourself your job is to be a link in a chain and to yeah. pass the torch. Like, just don't like you're all these analogies, right? Like don't drop the ball. We're handing a ball from generation to generation. It's just readiness. You just have to be ready. So don't talk to me about wanting a combat deployment when you don't know your fucking condition codes yet for the guns, you know? Um, I want to talk about that and about the workup. Um, I just want to stay for one second on the NJP. Um, just because the one question that kept coming to me over and over was without the NJP, 
do you stay in the Marine Corps? Dude, with the NJPIR, I almost ended up staying in the Marine Corps. Yeah. They tried to, they tried to expunge it, um, but without the NJP, I'm I'm probably still a Marine today. Yeah, and that's why that's why I said up front, I I think everything happened for a reason, and that you, I, I think you, you've written a book that kind of makes you a poet laureate of all aspects of Marine Corps life, and and what you write about the NJP and about the punishment speaks to experiences that a lot of Marines have had, a lot of service members have had and gives voice to an experience that really very few people would know enough to be able to write authoritatively about um, or comprehensively about or poignantly about. And I think that's an incredibly important contribution and it's perversely ironic of what you have to do to be able to write about that with authority and um, not saying everybody should go out and try to get DUIs so that they can become awesome writers. But, um, dude, I, I, I don't know how else you, you write that. And I think those words are going to have more of an impact um, than we can imagine for years to come. I think they give voice to a very rare subset of experiences that are worth acknowledging and understanding more. Well, I just hope if Marines read it, they say, hey, maybe I should, you know, like get a fucking Uber. And if I do get a DUI, like just bounce back from it because there's two things you can do. If you have a, an NJP, you can fold, which is what I saw a lot of people do. Um, or you can say I still bring something to the table for my platoon. And I'm lucky that I had the, the platoon commander that we got right after my NJP was in charge of a rifle platoon on the Syria deployment. And I had kind of like built a, a reputation as like a really competent, really good machine gunner. Um, the guy that, you know, is the same get guy I was in the Marine Corps. I'm outgoing. I'm outspoken. I, I I'm a, I'm a people person. I, you know, um, and I was very good at my job and uh, I just, so he was like, I can't make you a section leader, obviously, but he's like, you're going to have your own team. You're going to, you know, and, and one of my best friends, like two weeks after my NJP also got a DUI and we were both PFCs together and we ended up both getting Navy and Marine Corps achievement medals as Lance Corporals because the unit was just like, they noticed that hip, first of all, heavy guns is a high profile unit, right? It's a battalion level asset. So every major range that has, you know, 50 cals and Mark 19s on it, like we're there. So battalion shows yeah. up and watches it and they just took note. It's like, oh, there's, there's these two PFCs that both got, you know, punched down and they're, they're out here leading their platoon and, and, you know, they're critical parts of, of the leadership in there. And it's, you know, I didn't, I didn't feel like that at the time. I just felt like I'm just doing what is expected of me. This is like my role in the platoon. Um, yeah. There's when you don't have rank to lose anymore, you can kind of be a bit more um, aggressive with the junior Marines, if that makes sense. Cause there, you know, there is this kind of strict culture around like, well, what's hazing now? It's like, well, you look at these kids too long and they'll fucking cry hazing these days. It's swung so far in the wrong direction, in my opinion. But um, me and my buddy told our juniors when they showed up that they literally couldn't cry hazing on us because we were the same rank and it wouldn't work, which is not true. Um, but I'm glad they believed us. Cause I'm not and look, I'm not even proud of everything I did when I was in a position of authority. Cause there's no like guidebook on how to do it. You just remember like what a lot of your seniors did and yeah. um, not all culture. of it. 
Yeah, it is. And not all of it, looking back, like not all of it was the right way to lead, but you kind of like live and learn. Um, Three of my junior Marines were investigated for hazing. They weren't charged, but when they told me like what it was over, what it, like what the allegations were, I'm like, that's so petty. (laughs) Like, yeah, yeah. That's, that's a, it's a, it's shit that would have been like a normal Tuesday when I hit the unit, you know? Well, it's, it's funny, you know, while you're saying all that, I'm just struck again. I mean, how unique you are as a poet, it's rare that, and, and, and this is, to be fair, it's not as unique as it used to be with the veteran poetry movement that's taken off the way it has. But in the overall scope of history, the amount of poets that were exceptionally good at their jobs, especially if you're looking at war poets that were not, um, you know, drafted against their will, that were not uh, naturally reticent, but embraced the culture, excelled at it, were extroverted, you know, you're the furthest thing from a Sylvia Plath in a uniform that you can get. And I think that's an incredibly, um, I think that's what makes this such an interesting book because it's not the kind of experiences and the kind of perspective that we're used to seeing um, on the page. I, I can't let this one poem go. It's the best love letter to the Navy I think I've ever read. Um, it's called Hey Doc. And coming on the heels of your NJP, I thought it was a phenomenal exploration of what the Navy corpsman means to his Marines. Uh, just talk through, like, when did you write that? Was that written while you're still in the dark pit? Um, how much editing went into that? Just what's the backstory of that particular poem? I, I don't know if I remember when I wrote this, but I know who I wrote it about. It's about Doc Justin Bennett, who I don't know if he's going to listen to this or not. Um, but Doc Bennett was like one of just like our guys. He came to the unit like after the Syria deployment, but everyone in like Charlie Company in that group, because he was with us in that kind of like post um, deployment phase. He, for whatever reason, didn't deploy with the rest of the one six. He was with us in like the remain behind group. Um, but he just became like our guy. He was like everybody's buddy, um, you know, and cap like in, in the poem, like Captain Morgan was like his drink of choice. Um, and I just, I went to Bennett a lot and I talked to him multiple times about the fact that I was like, I, I was like, I think I need to get like mental health help, but I'm afraid like I'm going to get outed and it's going to negatively yeah. impact my career. And I never followed through with it while I was active duty. Um, I didn't get any kind of professional help until after, but I mean, doc was like, I'll, I'll do whatever you want. Like I'll, I'll do that for you, man. Like I'll, I'll find a way. And, but really it was just, I needed you know, it was just a safe place you could go and just kind of vent and bitch and fucking have a have a drink and. Well, I, I, can you just read that first? Those first four, five lines, because uh, I think that's I think that's fucking. If you have it in front of you, if you don't, I, I can read it. Pull it back up. Where is it? It's somewhere around here. It's uh, hey, hey, doc, can you put me back together? It's a, it's good to have a friend who doesn't have my same stupid haircut and gets nautical tattoos. <laughs> uh, friend to but, all, serve yeah, boys, serve, yeah. I mean, it, 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 he's he's like the rabbi. He's he's the he's the yeah. They're, your safe they're space like, to go to. They're a, they're a neutral third party. You know what yeah. I mean? They are so ingratiated. I listened to your your um your episode with Doc Oliver recently. Yeah. I've talked to Doc a lot on um just through Instagram DMs and all that. And uh, Helmand is my favorite song by him. That shit like almost it takes me right back to my own deployment. But 
like he was talking about, he's like, you become ingratiated in their culture without having to be of the culture. If that makes sense. Yep. Like nobody, nobody expects doc to jump in, in the fight. A lot of them do, but you know, um, but yeah, it's, uh, they are, they're that neutral third party who, when you like feel guilty about not being like the perfect Marine, they're like, you realize how fucking, like you said, like you have Stockholm syndrome, like, yeah, you know, like just, you know, there's, it's a perspective you, you just almost can't get from anybody else. And, you know, I, I was around some really, really good docs and, and they're just, they're, they're good dudes. And, um, well, it's funny. I mean, in the military, I think, cause you touch on something that people in any military profession, I think are going to relate to a bit, which is that in a culture like the military where there, there's a justifiable and in my opinion, excusable prejudice against um, immediately waving the white flag and seeking help. Uh, the medic, the first line medics do become kind of your de facto priests because those are the ones, you know, it's rare to find those folks that are there to take care of you. And even if they're an 18 Delta or if they're, a, you know, somebody who's, you know, or a butch medic, it's still nice to have somebody that's whose job description is to help you. And sometimes that the way that transfers and the way you, you leverage that is, uh, is an important piece and it's often overlooked. And I think the fact you gave voice to that um, is awesome. I, again, I say you, like you cover an awful lot of subjects that I think you've really, uh, I think people are going to relate to in a lot of ways. I, I want to make sure we also get to, I don't know how to say his name. Is it Corporal Jose Love? Corporal Joe's Love. My Joe's buddy, Love. Buddy Reese Joe's Love. He's not Hispanic, although it sounds like a Hispanic last yeah, name. Yeah, yeah, Okay. He's a, he's a half Jewish, half Catholic white dude from uh, from Athens, Georgia, um, who as of right now has like a beard, a mullet, and is uh, like pursuing bodybuilding. He's fucking massive right now. Um, he's he's one of my uh, one of my best friends. If you 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 want to dig into this poem a little bit? It's, it's- I I do I do. And look, look, can I just start by saying what my my bias was going into it? What when, is when, it? when when you when I first saw the title and I was like, okay, here's a ballad that he's writing. Okay, this this will be interesting. I'll give it. Eh, I'll I'll give him three lines to kind of start to grab me and let me see if, if if he can really hold up under it. And I read it and it's, um, it's beautiful. I, I, I thought everything from just the descriptions to the point you make, uh, I thought it's a fucking great, great poem. Uh, so yeah, tell, tell us about it and where it came from and yeah, the 360 view of it. I, I didn't. So he was, like I said, he was on the deployment that the entire unit went on. And when he got back, um, Let's see. They got back so right around. I think I was just getting off restriction. They got back and then I was reintegrated into weapons company and he was with uh, 81s, which is heavy mortars. Um, we call them the shady bums. Uh, and that's if you, if you know Marines and you ask them, well, like, well, what about your 81s? For whatever reason, every unit, their 81s platoon is out of control because they have to be like so fucking good at calling for fire that like they know more about their job than their platoon commander possibly can. Um, and there it's just, it's this weird phenomenon where 81 platoons are just the rowdiest group in, in pretty much every unit. I met Joe's um, we called him Joe's um, 
but I met him and I thought for sure this guy was a grunt because he just had like this edge, like this kind of like aggressive attitude all the time. And, um, on ruck runs, he would like absolutely like smoke check everybody. He was just like, you look at him, you're like, this is what a, a, a Marine should be. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, not the best garrison Marine. Um, he got, he had an attitude problem. He got into it with his platoon commander a lot, but to be fair, his platoon commander, um, you know, like a lot of the guys in that platoon had problems with him because they just, they didn't see eye to eye on a lot of shit. And, um, but getting to know him, you know, eventually someone was like, Oh, he, well, he's the RO. I was like, he's not even a grunt. They're like, no, I'm like, that dude's tougher than everyone in your platoon. Um, but, uh, me and we just, we just clicked, you know, um, he kind of had this like anti authority kind of like, whatever he just he was very disgruntled but he was also very much committed to like the war fighting spirit of and this is where a lot of guys frustration came from because we were in 2019 we got a new division general who put out uh, a white letter that basically embarrassed camp lejeune he's it was like everyone has to be up at five yeah a layout on how your barracks rooms are supposed to look and he put out like a uh a gear SOP that everyone had to follow, which is like, it goes, it flies in the face setting up your kit as a professional, like the way you need it set up for you, yeah. just all this stuff. And it was, there was this big focus on garrison and constantly doing like dress uniform inspections. And for all yeah. of us, it was like the yeah. focus needs to be fucking war fighting. And that's where he and I saw eye to eye. And we both, um, as I mentioned earlier, had a drinking problem. Um, but he just became one of my best friends. And right before we went to integrated training exercise, which for us was a, it was a two month thing out in California. We were, we were in the field for pretty much all of it. Um, very large scale, like company and battalion level training operations. He had broken his hand in a bar fight. And then, you know, I eventually got work from the guys in 81s. It's like, Hey, Joe's like pop for Coke. And I was like, Oh no, dude, you know, it, it broke my heart, but you know, I, uh, I just knew that he was kind of in the same place as me. He had a problems with, with alcohol and he kind of had gone through some things and he just, there's a lot of like depression, un, unaddressed depression, unaddressed anger and anxiety that like everyone, you, you know, that all your boys are going through it too, but nobody really knows how to talk about it or deal with it in a healthy way. Um, so that's kind of how that went. And then I got back and, you know, he was the, when I got back from California, he was waiting there for me with a case of beer and some pizza. And we talked about it and I was like, well, fuck man. Um, it took him forever to finally get out of the Marine Corps. They kept delaying his case. And he was like, <laughs> he was like defiant to the end. It was like, they had him wow. unrestricted, I think for like four months straight or some shit like that. It was wild. When I finally got back from Okinawa, I think he was all the way down to like maybe a PFC. Um, Did he get an honorable? Uh, he got like other than other like general or he other doesn't, than. he doesn't have an honorable and i want him oh. to like you know there's a way to appeal or whatever and there and there are going to be people who listen to this and they're like fuck that guy he popped for coke but i don't i don't believe in like a zero tolerance policy for drug abuse in the military because this kind of shit can happen and then you can give some, you can give somebody a second chance and they can bounce back i bounced back my buddy Leo bounced back, right? We both were shit bags with DUIs at one point. And then we had, then, then, you know, we went from being shit bags with DUIs to, you know, our battalion sergeant major trying to get our NJPs expunged 
to talk us into reenlisting. You right. can give people second chances. And I've had friends that have been, you know, kicked out for drugs. And it's just one of those things where it's like, you, uh, I, I know, I, I don't, I don't know what the army's policy is, but I just, no, I the Marine Corps is the strictest for sure. And it's zero tolerance and it's, it's, sucks we you know he was a he was a really really fucking good marine and he probably just needed to go to fucking counseling and talk to a mental health professional instead of get kicked out so well i mean that's that's kind of the the issue right and that's a lot of i think what's behind a lot of your poetry is the fact you're an individual in a big bureaucracy and how the individual intersects with the big bureaucracy is a tricky business and almost everyone's story of their military service is navigating that in some way, shape, or form. And because as an individual, everything is uh, is, is personal and, and individual to you, but you're in a bureaucracy that needs a one-size-fits-all solution that cannot possibly function with any kind of clarity um, dealing with things on a case-by-case basis. So as a result, you have to surf what are sometimes arbitrary or uh, arbitrary rules or um, yeah. you know, just uh, broad brush strokes when it's like, but dude, I'm an individual. And I yeah. think uh, a lot of people's success or failure of their careers is how they manage to navigate that. And that is not an easy thing to do. Yeah. And I mean, here's the other thing too. Like I said earlier, like he didn't do himself any favors before he got in trouble. He didn't do himself any favors after he got into trouble. He was like, uh, you know, if you watch pro wrestling in the late nineties, when Stone Cold Steve Austin was flipping everybody the bird and just slamming beer and was like, fuck you. Yeah. Like that was his attitude towards authority and it, it didn't help him, but it's like, what can you do? You know, he was, these are we're, t- we're talking about junior enlisted Marines. We're talking about guys between the age of 18 to 22. They're not. They don't know how to. I didn't even know how to fucking think years down the road at the time. I had tunnel vision. I was I was literally just like, what's the next fucking field op? Yeah. Right. And then when and then and then do I have enough money in the bank after to get a fucking case of beer after it? Yeah, that's your life for four years. Right. So it, it fucking happens. And, um, well, well, that's let me just say, let me just pick that up for a second. That's also the other important piece of your book is that because you're of who you're talking about, and because you are talking about Marine infantry, that's a very unique niche where it's like, you need the savages on the battlefield, but what yeah. the fuck do you do with them when they're not on the battlefield? How do you manage that risk? How do you, you know, how does that integrate? And if you're one of them, how the fuck are you supposed to, um, where's the padded room to kind of, you know, get out your energy and, and be protected yet still be viable and ready for whatever is about to come. That's a difficult thing to navigate. So much of why so many guys get in trouble now is because social media exists and because it's just, we, you know, we're, we're at the late stage of the global war on terror, but I would hear stories about my first sergeants and how they behaved when they were Lance corporals. And I'm just like, we're not like, we're not this problem generation of Marines. Marines have been behaving just like us or worse. Yeah. All the way back. But this is not new. This is just this thing where, you know, a lot of guys who, you know, stacked a lot of bodies early in the GWAT stayed in long enough and they're too close to the end of their career to risk it for some fucking punk kid, even though that kid was just like them or they were just like they were just like that when they were younger. It's like he, they're going to pick their retirement over you every fucking time. And I don't blame them. 
I really don't. I can't be mad at that, but it's like, that's what happens. You, you know, it just, well, what what did you say in in your, uh, kill your heroes poem? You said, uh, the ones that stayed in, I guess the ones we, we idolized all got out. Yeah. Well, that, and there was this thing where it's like, where all the combat veterans go. It's like a lot of them got driven out. Um, under the Obama administration, they, we got a comp, we got the first commandant ever in like 2013 This is before I was in, obviously, but that didn't come from an infantry background. And he put in the tattoo policy where it's like the Marine Corps has the strictest tattoo policy and it's the, the <laughs> most gang like branch. So you explain why can the Navy have a neck tattoo, but we can't like get the fuck out of here. Um, cause we have to be the most professional. It's like, this is bullshit. It's bullshit. Right. And it's, you know, he cracked down on the hazing policy and we just, we get all this stuff that like gets in the way of what the job of the Marine Corps is. And it's fucking war fighting at the end of the yeah. day. And I just, that, but that poem is about, you know, they kept trying to get me to reenlist, reenlist, reenlist. And I was torn on it. And it's, you know, and then I, I saw like, you know, how command sometimes did fuck guys over. But like, to me, it's, I, I'm also like, well, my battalion commander's got a silver star and I've read the fucking citation and like, you know, I might not agree. Uh, I might hate a lot of the ways that he runs the fucking unit, but who am I to fucking talk about this guy? Right. Right. Who, right. who am I to fucking get mad at first Sergeant Martin when he chews my ass out? You know, like he fucking, he, he was in the battle of Fallujah. Like it's, there's a, there's this thing where it's, it's just, I respect them so much because they're, those are the motherfuckers I watch do it on TV. I joined to fill their shoes. Yeah. They're literally the, they're, they're my command. And a lot, they're helping mold me. They're teaching me how to be what the Marine Corps needs. They know more about it than me, and they've put more time into it than I ever did. And it's, but it's a conflict too, because at the end of it, you're like, I do I get out? Do I do this? And I had a long conversation with my sergeant major, and uh, he was like, I got a million dollar home on a beach in North Carolina that I never fucking see. He was like the ball. He, he literally said, he's like the bonuses are, I'm sorry, money. I'm sorry that your fucking wife left. I'm sorry that you never see your kid. I'm sorry that this, I'm sorry. That it's, it's the fucking truth. But, um, That's if, they had gotten one that itself. Expunged, if they had gotten that NJP expunged, I, I would still be in. They just weren't able to do it. Um, well, I, I mean, is it, yeah, it, it, I, I love, I love that poem. I love the kill your heroes poem because I think it's something again, everybody can relate to if you've been in, that, you know, a lot of the people that um, were the reason that you got in, you know, now you, they're, they're the actual physical people that you're interacting with and you may like them. You may not, they may like you, they may not, uh, you may agree with them. You may not, but there's always going to be that nag in the back of your mind that, but no shit, these were the guys that made me want to join in the first place. And there's that leverage that they will always have, or not always, but in many of our minds, you know, there you'll always be looking up at folks like that. And when they're and, telling you, when they're asking you to reenlist, and they're like, "We really think you should reenlist," you know, and, and you just keep hearing it. It's like you just, how do you tell them no? You're like, "Yeah," because it's the fact that they are thinking of you out outside of everyone in the and I wasn't the only person that they wanted to stay in, but it's like. I'm honored that you think that of me, but, but no, I need yeah. to leave. Like, you know, my company guns sat me down and he was like, why are you getting out? I'm like, Gunny, I'm 30 and I live in the fucking barracks. Would you stay in? I'm like, I joined too late. I joined too late, man. It's kind of like the end of the day. Like that's how the story played out. But, um, I know you remember from the first time we did a podcast when you had video, like the flag behind me, my Marine Corps yeah. flag. Yeah. 
to have your battalion sergeant major and your battalion commander sign it and not just sign it, but say like, you know, uh, I think my lieutenant colonel was, it says, uh, thanks for your influence, expertise, and give a damn. You were the one who got away. And my sergeant major said, uh, mm. I'm humbled to work with you. I would serve with you in any theater, specifically combat. You're a fucking badass. And to me, I'm like, I'm not a fucking badass. Like, you remember all the moments. I, I think most people are like this. They, they remember the moments where they weren't their best. Um, because to me, like the moments where I was like, you know, hard as fuck and like I, I absolutely nailed it. It's like, yeah, that's what I was expected to do. But um, but that's also a worthwhile epitaph for the career, because to answer the question that you raised initially and that you raised in the poems, was I a good Marine? And I think every service member asks himself that in some way or another. Was I good? Was I did I did I do it? And did I get off at the right exit? Could I have gone more? Should I have done less? You know, was I good? And to have them say that and put that in writing on a flag that they knew you'd have the rest of your life, I think is um, that's a real gift. Yeah, it, it is. I um, I need to get like a real interior decorator to make this uh, apartment look like it's not like you walk in, you're like, holy fuck, a veteran lives here. Um, you know, um, but it's one of those like one, one day when I have my own like house, there's going to be a room where all this shit goes and that's yeah. going to be. It'll probably be like, hopefully, I guess where I write maybe, um, or I don't know, like, but it's, that's when I evacuated here, I took, uh, when I evacuated for the hurricane, that flag got packed up and brought, cause I'm like, this thing cannot get water damage on it. Yeah. Yeah. Like thing is that is the most valuable fucking thing I own in my, it's, there's a poem about that flag, but the the flag cost me 19. It's the most valuable fucking thing I own. That and the thousands of dollars of guns and ammo that I also brought with me. But uh, hey, we can't we can't end this without talking about Matt. Um, I thought it was a surprising way of ending the book. Um, talk about first off why that final section, why you leave us by talking about Matt, and then talk about who Matt was and why that was important to include at all. Matt, um, Matt was my first suicide, if that makes sense. Um, Unfortunately, yeah. Probably won't be the last, and the suicide epidemic is what's fucking just absolutely smashing us. But um, I didn't know where else to put these poems in the book, and it seemed like that was the right place to put them. And it was the it, Matt was the Charlie Company, like line company uh, section leader, right? But we kind of merged with them after Syria and became one big unit. And he was never directly like my senior, but I still considered him like one just because of the 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 guy that he was he was this yeah I, I could talk at length about him but he made everyone that worked with him better um you know and we got we got really tight-knit with charlie company like it was one of those things where it's like you're a weapon you're from weapons company you got attached to them but we we deployed with them and we were all like one big unit at that point and um, Matt was one of those dudes who, uh, you know, never treated me different after the NJP and, you know, was mm. encouraged and told me just keep on keeping on. And, um, he reenlisted and he was going to have to go be a drill instructor. And then he got a big, like outer regs tattoo on his thigh of like this, like 
vampire like gothic chick with her tits out or something like it was just and it said like bloodlust on her or whatever <laughs> so then he couldn't be a drill instructor and he got to stay in the infantry which is what he wanted he went out to 27 he did another deployment to syria um and we got the news in okinawa and I, in my head i'm like oh well he must have died in combat like i know that's how he would have wanted to go because i knew that 27 had not come back yet well it turns out he was on the advance the advon the first wave home mm-hmm. um we don't know. I don't, I still don't have a fucking answer and I'm, I'm done looking for it and I'm not like angry at him anymore. And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, I've come to that point where I'm like, I'm just, I'm okay with it. Um, and I'm glad I knew him, but because of COVID we couldn't have that. They didn't have that funeral. So it was interesting because this was a thing that like me and my friends like struggled. Like I remember when we got the bracelets shipped out, for, and there's people who are like, you, those, you shouldn't wear those for somebody who committed suicide. I'm just like, I don't give a fuck what you think. Like, he's my guy and I feel naked if I'm not wearing it. Um, but it was just this heavy moment where we're like, fuck, like one of our seniors just like killed himself. And it was the guy that like was like larger than life. He was like a fucking stud Marine um, and just embodied the whole machine gunner like like what it meant to be and do that job. He just, he wanted to do 20 years and just never get out of the fight. So it's, it was funny because we didn't have that funeral until like after I was already out of the Marine Corps. Um, We came home from Okinawa and then I got out, I moved to Louisiana and then it was November. It was right after the Marine Corps birthday and veterans day. So I drove up to Camp Lejeune. Um, I stayed there for about a week and then I got really drunk at the barracks with everybody for the Marine Corps birthday. And I actually had like an emotional breakdown, like later that night outside of my buddy's barracks room, like one of my buddies who he was getting out two months later. And I was just like, dude, I don't know. I don't know what to fucking do. I don't know. Like I was still very early in the transition. I was just like, I, I couldn't make sense of any of it. And then, you know, being back there for this funeral, um, and he, he called me like two months after he got out and he was like, I get it. I get it now. He was like, I know I was like hard on you for being that way, but he's like, I get it. It's fucking weird out here to go from that yeah. culture to you just back on the block. It's that whole last, the whole end of the book is it's called terminal leave. It's about getting out. And yeah. um, it, it, kind of hints at the fact that I had dealt with some suicidal thoughts too, but we, I decided to put all of the poems about him toward the end of the book. Um, because that was kind of like, for me, where this wrapped up because I went out there and that was like my first military funeral. Um, and it was just, it was like eight or nine months after he had passed away, but it was our moment to finally have some closure. And it was my first time seeing a lot of my buddies after I got out. And it was like, it was powerful. I wrote, I wrote giants after that one. I wrote, um, decorated after that. I wrote a a bunch of poems about that experience and most of them ended up toward the end there, but. Were you tempted to go back in when you, after you saw them, did the, did the draw to try to go back in ever come up after you saw them? No, I have a, I have a, a three C three Charlie reenlistment code, which means I need like a a very high level waiver. Okay. Um, get back in, which is another thing that to me, I just felt like was a slap in the fucking face. Yeah. Um, I had to sign a document to get my DD-214 that said my 
conduct was not up to standard of a Marine, so on and so forth because of my NJP and I'm just signing it. And I'm like, that was harder to sign than the fucking NJP. Cause it's like, this is not an accurate representation of my service. Yeah. Yeah. I made one mistake. I fucking paid in full back for what I did. You know what I mean? And, um, did you get an honorable? I have an honorable. I have an honorable. Oh, I, have, okay. I have two Navy and Marine Corps achievement medals. Um, I have more achievement medals than I have NJPs. <laughs> <laughs> like personal, yeah. like, like you personally yeah. were awarded this medal for, for yeah. superior performance at X event. And to me, some of it is like, I wonder like, was that just like a, a, a we're sorry. Like, yeah, it's like a carbon offset. Yeah. Kind, yeah. Of, kind of one yeah. of those things where like, did my command just do that to like, kind of like, you know, boost my resume a little bit or not. Right. But, I mean, it's when it's real things that I did, it's not made up. Yeah. One of them was because I, they did a machine gun squad comp in Okinawa. I was found to be the most competent machine gunner in the battalion. And I'll say to this day, I'll say that's only because uh, Nick Masachuk it's not a heavy machine gunner. If that guy, cause he's only line company. So two forties are his bread and butter. But like to me, I'll, there's guys that look at them like they were better than me. Um, but because I was in heavy machine guns, I, I taught classes to all the line company guys to get them refreshed on the heavy machine guns before the squad comp, my squad was found to be the most competent. And then, so they were like, this is worth a name. And I'm like, if that's worth a name today, then sure. I'll fucking take it. You know, if, if you I'm trying to think of the best way to ask this if you could pick right now would you have a 20 year career doing everything you wanted in the Marines or would you be the poet that you are now if you could go back and you know the NJP could be scrubbed and everything like that what would you right now what would your decision be Right now, like, or basically, are you asking if I could have it like turn out the way I wanted? What would I? Yeah, do? yeah, because because I mean, again, you've heard my praise for the book. I think this book is going to be a real needle mover in the annals of veteran writing. But would you rather that, or would you have rather had a twenty-year career, be uh, you know, an awesome Marine, go do whatever? you know, deployments come up and, and, uh, and yeah, just crush it and, 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 you know, feel fully fulfilled as a 0331 moving on up the ranks. Um, I would pick whichever, uh, option, um, would have had it work out between me and my ex. That's, that's the, that's the fucking regret that I take away from everything more than anything, because when you're 27, you don't, uh, like you, you think that, there's always going to be like another woman that like does it for you. And, um, you know, that was, a yeah. that was a relationship that would have lasted without the Marine Corps being involved in it. And, um, you know, you just fucking move on with your life, but it's like, what would you change? It's like, that's the thing I would change. Like fuck the Marine mm. Corps fuck writing. Like, you know, I, I'm at a point, I'm 31. I'm, I'm kind of like, you know, I'm tired of like being on the fucking dating scene. Like it just sucks out here. It's fucking, 
it is what it is, man. So I don't know. It's probably not the answer you were expecting or anything. No, I, I'm, and, and I actually feel bad for not having addressed that because that is a theme throughout um, the loss of that relationship. And, and I, I get that. And I'm sure a lot of people can relate to that, um, especially the way the military intersects with your relationships. If you, so let me rephrase maybe. Um, if you never became a Marine, um, but you kept that relationship, would that have been worth it then? Who knows? Who, who, who knows, man? It's a, it's a big what if. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I, this is the, this is the story. This is the way it got written. I mean, that's, you can, this is why I like the, the, the poem paintings uh, so much. Cause it's, it's all the things that I experienced in Syria that I wasn't able to talk to her about. And like, I remember, um, you know, the first couple of times we saw each other after that deployment, I would like just go to these places where I'd get really quiet or I would drink too much. And she was just like, what's wrong. And I, I didn't have the, I wasn't able to, to talk through it. I wasn't able to deal with it. And I just, you know, it, it was what it was, but it's like, it's, I say at the end of that poem, it's like, I, if I could paint a better ending to the story, I would, but it's the only, it's, it, this is the way it went. And, um, that's life. And this is, it's a thing that I, when I first started putting poetry out there on social media, like I was very hesitant to put the relationship stuff out there. Cause it's like, well, yeah, people like the, the rock eater stuff, right. They sure. like the, like the barracks fight poems. Right. But like, what, like, this is the shit that like tore me the fuck up. This is the shit that's like hard to live with. Cause so much of it, um, to me is, is my own fault. Um, and, but that's the thing that I, when I share it, people are like, I feel every bit of that, man. Like, you know, it's a relation. Like it, who was I talking this about? It might've been Matt Perry, red stick six, but we was like, it's, it's not designed to work with a relationship. The military is not designed to work with your fucking relationship. And this thing where like, they're asking people like, well, what would you want? What would make you stay in? And it's like more family time, X, Y, and Z. It's like, you're not going to get that. Well, even if you do get it, it's going to be a perverted family life. It's not, and I don't mean like in some disturbing weirdo way. Like I just gross. mean, it's, it's not a normal family life. Yeah, no, it's not. And it's and not that's not for everybody. No. And, um, let, let me rephrase my, my earlier question. If you had never joined the Marines and you had stayed with her and that had matured and you got married and had a family, do you think there would have been an itch still because of all the questions that never got resolved in your head? Or do you think it would have been like, yeah, that's there, but I get over it because this is more, this is worth it. I think I'd get over it because I think the most important thing, and I thought this before the Marine Corps too, I've always thought the most important thing a man can do is um, be a good husband and be a good father. Um, and to me, the Marine Corps offered a chance for me to kind of get my shit together because I was kind of just spinning my wheels after college. I didn't know what the fuck I wanted to do. Um, and, um, you know, there are definitely like some benefits to starting your family in the Marine Corps. Um, childbirth is an expensive thing for a family to go through. Uh, it's free at the Naval hospital. Now, um, being on the other side of it, I don't know how much I trust the fucking Naval hospital to deliver my kids, but, um, you know, there's, there's some benefits. I had friends who had started families in the Marine Corps and it's like, yeah, you know, it's, it's been cheaper and it's been this and that. And we got base mm -hmm. out, but you know, they're also divorced now. So it's like, it, it, it doesn't, 
you know, you only know what you know at the time and you make decisions based off of it. And No, absolutely. And I don't mean to take you down a uh, downward spiral of regret or, or remorse or anything like that. It's, um, I, but I, I feel bad that we didn't bring up uh, the relationship earlier because I think that it is undoubtedly the soft, tender underbelly of your writing it's, um, it's that does drive all this, it seems it's like. It's sprinkled in there. It is, it's sprinkled in there. It's not overwhelming. It's not a, this is not a book about love poems. It's not about relationships, but it's in there because and I, I, think it, I think it fits exactly where it's supposed to fit in this book because this book is about my experiences as a Marine. Even when I wanted my life to be about my relationship, the Marine Corps overwhelmed and dominated it and forced it out of the picture. Um, so it, it that that is what this book is, and I, you know, I might uh, I might write a book of uh, love poems at some point, but because I've I've written it, there's a lot of that stuff that I have written, um, but this is, this is not what that book was. And this isn't what I, that's not what I wanted to publish. Um, this is, I mean, the dedication at the beginning is called four Marines and it's, it's, this is four fucking Marines. This is for the people that I, uh, I miss every day, you know, um, it is, but that said, it seems like a pretty strong why about a lot of things. I think to those that are looking for it, um, it doesn't take much to see that that's a through line throughout the book that does justify a lot of the decisions you made. Um, what part, what do you mean? Well, the, the relationships seem to drive a lot of decisions. It drove the DUI in many respects, right? Oh, I mean, I, so I'm going to be honest. I, I think I might've been trying to commit suicide that night. Um, unintentionally, I, I, I don't know. Yeah. Um, there was, uh, it's not something I'm going to dive into the details of, but I was going, uh, 160 miles an hour up I-95 heading North. Um, and if, if, if I hadn't seen flashing cop lights, I don't, I don't know how that night would have ended. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, some of it, 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 there was just, there was a, there was a ton of emotion that I, I was, I was, I was just going through some stuff and I wasn't handling any of it well. And it was, I don't know. It was in that moment, like everything came to a head and I just lost my fucking mind. And um, I got in the car and I slammed the fucking gas to the floor and and i don't i don't know i i don't know if i'll ever really know all the way what that was about um what in me thought that was a good idea uh but it happened and um you know and it's and and this book doesn't get written honestly if that didn't happen right. if i you know if, if i get back to base and i'm scot-free like who, who knows? I don't know. Um, there's no way to tell how life would have gone, but it went this way um, for a, a reason, I guess. And, um, buy my book. This is a fucking threat. Uh, I'll find you if you don't. And uh, fucking well, Speaking of that stuff, what's coming next for you? Because obviously this is a big muscle movement to get this book out there, but is there more Marine stuff to write or are you going to go into the love poems and kind of mine that, or are you could take another vein in your life and kind of, you know, put As that on paper. Yeah. Dude, writing might be on the back burner for a little while. Oh, uh, old Mason needs to make some fucking money. Um, so if this book, there's the threat, there's the threat to buy the book right there. Yeah. If this book doesn't do it. Uh, you know, um, I, I mean, 
like I said, I have, I have a ton of shit written. I could probably put together a new book fairly quickly. Um, I'm going to take a step back and let some other people get published. Cause there's a lot of really, really good writers out there who I think should also get, get their stories out there. And I, Dead Reckoning Collective is staying busy. I'll put it that way. They got a lot of uh, they got a lot of stuff on the chopping block. A lot of writers that they're they're going to be putting out there in the world soon. Because I think a lot of writers took to Instagram. It was just this thing that kind of happened organically, yeah. and a lot of them are finally putting all their work into something that can be published as a collective work, right? Because like like a, this is this book is not just me publishing an Instagram account. It's it's a narrative. It's a right. it's, more it's more than just that um but um i'm gonna end up writing a lot about politics and my beliefs on culture on society on masculinity on fucking gender roles on why you should never fucking trust the government ever 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 again why uh like i'm gonna end up pushing in that direction because that's what interests me. And that's what I get fired up about because we're being led by the worst of us and we're being led. And most people are just too, too like, how do I put it? Most people don't know how to read between the lines well enough to understand that they are being manipulated and led to a cliff that all of us are going to be marched off of to the benefit of a very, very small group of people at the top. Um, we're in, to me, I, I think we are in one of the most important inflection points in the last hundred years in human history. Um, well, that part, I absolutely agree with. I, I think, I think, and you say it in, in here about a slightly about a couple of years ago, but I think when you say, um, was it, uh, you talk about peace and you say there's, uh, you know, it's peacetime, but there's war everywhere. And we've been in that place for seven or eight years and now it's actually is coming to a head in many respects and i i hope it doesn't go any further but i think they're i think you're right i think there's yeah. this is an incredibly important time in, in our history put that palm together and put it in here because so many people bitch about like well it's i was in the infantry in peacetime blah 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 and it's like dude we were a tweet away and i'm not even one of those yeah. people i think donald trump had way better foreign policy than Joe Biden could ever dream to have. Joe Biden has done nothing but fuck up. And I'm going to predict it right here. He's going to fuck up the situation in the Ukraine. Um, he's going to fuck it up bad. And I am inclined to think he's going to fuck it up on purpose. Um, not for, not to, and it's going to benefit everyone in Washington, D.C. and fuck the average. It's already fucking the average American. It already is fucking us. Our food is going to be unaffordable because of this fucking war. Um, and that's not even to say the fact that he may drag us into it and actually get human lives fucking put on the line. Um, American lives lost in this thing that doesn't, shouldn't, it shouldn't even be a fucking, th- it's neither here nor there, right? But th- it was just the fact that we were in and it's like, I was in the hospital with my dad because my grandmother was dying. Um, it was New Year's Eve, 2020. She was, you know, they were like, oh, she's going to come out of it. And in my head, I'm like, no, she's not. This, I'm like, this is it. And I'm glad I'm home on leave. I'm glad I'm not deployed yet because I will be able to make the funeral. But um, I could just, I just knew, I'm like, this is it. But we're watching the news and it was when Iran bombed Baghdad. Mm-hmm. You remember that? It was right around New Year's and everyone's like, what's going to happen? And my dad's like, we ought to fucking rubber He's like, he's doing the same warmongering shit he was doing when I was 10 years old in the living room. We ought to level that. It's like, yeah, we, dad, we. We ought to do it. You're going to go do it. 
And it was just wild to me sitting there in the, in the room with him because I know logistically what a war with Iran would look like for me going. And I'm like, your son is now in. You think this just ends well? You think I just come home fine? You think there's no possibility? Like, it, it's like, is this worth Is I To me, it's like, dad, is Iraq worth it to you? What the fuck is Iraq worth to the average American? It shouldn't yeah. be worth it shouldn't be worth anything, but the people love to beat the fucking war drums like it's an NFL football game. I don't know. I don't know about that. See, I come from a different a different place in the country. Around me, it's they love to beat the peace drums no matter what, and it's peace at all costs. And that, in my experience, leads to nothing but more war. Well, that um, does. You know, I, I, I think there's I think there's a lot of nuance in there, but um, there's but an yeah, answer. you're right. There's there's an answer in the middle, but it was just wild. Well, it, it, it depends. I, I, I think it depends. I think, I mean, and I don't want to take us too far down, down that talk, but I mean, I think it does depend. I think there's, it depends what the reason is. I think yeah. war is amoral. It's not immoral. It's amoral. It just depends. Why is war being done? As I say, you push an old lady in front of the bus, you push an old lady out of the way of the bus, you both push an old lady around. There's very yeah. different reasons for it. And I think not all wars are equal. And I think sometimes we become reflexively in my experience, and again, I've spent most of my adult life in New York and L.A., mm-hmm. but I've been around a lot more people that are reflexively anti-war than reflexively pro-war. And being a 9-11 survivor, I, uh, my bias goes the other way because I look and I go, hey, man, when the buildings were falling down, fuck yeah, you know, we, we, we don't give the benefit of the doubt to these assholes anymore. Um, now, if I was around in 1917... Or 1916, and the rumblings of World War One were there. That's a different war that had different logic or lack thereof in it. Um, but I, I, I do think wars are different and have to be judged on their individual merits. Um, but uh, let me say this: this is the one thing I'm, I'm absolutely as partisan as can be about, and it's about you. Um, and this is just—I I think I've said this to you before, either on the show or offline. But. Um, you're too good a creative writer. Oh, let, me, let me give you my fear. I don't want you to become a second-rate pundit. I would rather you be a first. And this is just me talking as a fan, not as, as an expert by any stretch of the imagination. But I would rather you become a first-rate creative writer and let the ideas that you have filter onto the page creatively than, than you address them head-on and have to climb the hill of convincing people because God knows we have tons of punditry out there. And I think you're, you know, when I look at this book, even this book says things creatively without saying them necessarily on the nose. It says things that I think um, more poignantly, more memorably, and for an audience that may agree, may not agree with what your personal positions are, you're reaching more people than if it was to be a, a complete polemic. Does that make sense? It does. I just, um, when you, when, when, you know, when you ask about like what I'm going to do as a writer, it's like, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't put right now. I'm just trying to, to pay the, to pay the bills. Chris. Well, that that's always important. Yeah, for sure. I don't, um, I don't have like plans as far as like, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do X, Y, Z. I have some like other ideas for like, you know, books of poetry I could do, but I don't really know how to write outside of poetry in the first place. Um, you know, and you know, maybe at some point I, you know, go the MFA route like Tyler did, but I just, 
I'm, I'm at a point where it's like something's got to give. I'm 31. I, uh, I'm living paycheck to paycheck and um, it's just, it's not, it's not working. Um, it turns out that I am not a rock star. Uh, nonprofits are great to volunteer for, but that's not gonna put any money in the bank account in that, uh, you know, it's, it's just, I had a weird year in 2020, man. Like I got a, a big disability paycheck and then I spent, you know, I had the freedom to kind of really give my time to something I believed in patrol base Abate. And the second I got home, a hurricane hit and I had to get on the road. And then I threw myself into another cause I really believed in. And it's, you know, there was a lot of attention like coming my way. And, and you know, like I, I got a book, like a lot of things happened that don't happen to people. Most people just live a life where it's like, Hey, just, go to work and like pay your fucking bills. Mm-hmm. And there were so many opportunities that came my way so quick. I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to ride this lightning, but I'm going to tell you, like, after I came back from the event we did in, in, uh, in November up in New York, I was like, all right, the, the well's dry. I got to start putting some fucking money back into my bank and I got to figure, I got to figure something out. Um, yeah. And I think, I mean, look, dude, I don't know if you know Spalding Gray or people like that, but I think there's, I think there's a lot of avenues that might open up to you. Um, not saying they're going to fall in your lap necessarily, but I think, um, I don't know, man, I think this book is a, is a hell of a piece of work. I think there's going to be a lot of stuff that's going to roll downhill at you. Um, now that it's out there, I really do. I hope so. Um, I will be spending, uh, mid April through the end of May, um, as a production assistant on a film crew, cause that's currently the best job offer on the table for me. And then, uh, Savage Wonder Festival. And hopefully that does a nice little pop for my sales. And then wh- whatever else happens after that, I'm, I'm just kind of, you know, I'm, I'm going to hold off on like picking a, a, a real like thing to do until after this book tour with Buck. Cause I really, really want that to happen what I would like to do is to get a documentary filmmaker to kind of follow it and highlight, you know, cause we plan on stopping with some of the other DRC writers and like mm, when we're in cool. their town, when we're in their town, you know, have them hop up and like, we'll do a, a, have them do some live poetry reading. And I think it's Buck's plan is to start up in Dallas where Tyler is. And if we can do an event with Tyler and Keith, like it, it can be a documentary that talks to the people who founded it in the first place. And then, I guess what you would currently call their two most active writers, me and Buck. Um, And then kind of just like showcase, like this is where veteran literature is heading because the age of the, you know, seven figure book deal to go straight to Hollywood is over. I think Americans are over it. I really do. I think most Americans like don't like they care about the Ukraine because social media told them to. But before, like when Afghanistan, when the Afghanistan withdrawal happened, like nobody gave a fuck. I think the average American is. I don't know about that. I think they give a fuck. They give a fuck maybe for not very long. I I don't don't know. But but for for a month or two, they were kind of into it. Um, I I don't know. I, I have a hard time believing that they really cared until they were told to care about it. But for the veteran community, I know for a fact, the veteran community is tired of another goddamn Navy SEAL book. And that's nothing against the Navy SEALs, but I mean, for fuck's sake, every single one of them starts with how hard Buds was. We get it. We get it. You know what I mean? We all know. So, you know. Well, yeah. I mean, there is something. 
those stories are so much less accessible to the average service member anyway. Like the average, the average four years in the service is not a goddamn action movie. It's a lot of boredom. It's a lot of frustration. It's a lot of suffering. It's a lot of, you know, trying to balance. Yeah. I mean, well, that's why I think creative writing has such a niche that it can fill because I think memoir goes, um, you know, I mean, great memoir. There's nothing like it. That's awesome. Um, but I think, I think your book, for example, fills a bit of a memoir, but in a different way. And I think the more creatively things like that can be written, the more it introduces things that we haven't seen before and haven't heard before. Um, I would say, I agree with you. There's been an awful lot of like seal memoirs, soft memoirs, things like that. Um, I don't think it would be a terrible idea for folks that are in that community that are starting to write to try their hand at writing it in different ways, maybe even in different forms like poetry. Um, Because maybe some of those, uh, while everybody's an individual and has individual experiences, sometimes changing the form a little bit can offer a new insight and a new dynamic, or dare I say, even do a fucking play about it, which would be terrible either. Most of those guys aren't writers. They hire a ghostwriter. Chris Kyle's not a writer or wasn't a writer. Marcus Luttrell is not a writer. He doesn't sit down and write. It's not a thing that, you know, someone wrote Lone Survivor as he told it to them. Right, right. Well, they had a co-writer on it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, 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 that's, and, that, and that's, look, and I mean, I won't begrudge anybody from just trying to tell their story and get it off their chest and fucking Lone Survivor is a fucking jaw dropper for sure. Yeah. But with that said, yeah, I, I think, though, um, the more that the veteran community becomes literate, um, and I don't mean that in terms of being able to read, but maybe in terms of being able to write um, and study different forms. And I think, honestly, I mean, I think you tap into something here. The more that people, while they're in, can be writing and start with poetry because it is um, simpler uh, to master. You don't have to write, you know. 450 page novel and develop a narrative arc. You know, you can just start to capture things. I think there's a lot in that and a lot that, that people can mine. And I think it's a great form of therapy. If nothing else, if your writing's complete dog shit, I think it does a lot for the individual. And then as that starts to get honed in, I think that can be something that can export to and be a deliverable to the world. Yeah, I, I agree completely. I guess, and I'm not trying to disparage anybody. I'm just saying like, that's, that's the difference is that those books got a contract because the plan was always for that thing to go straight to the fucking big screen. You can tell, you can almost tell that it was always like designed to go that route. Almost, almost like fucking propaganda. Whereas corporal fuckface like me in the barracks, just writing some poetry that's that no one helped that there was no nobody gave me an advance to write this no one was like right yeah, let's right 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 you know well i mean yeah and and that's a lot different i mean and i'm not begrudging them i'm no, not like, i mean it's also a different dynamic i mean some of those books like were written there was like the first wave of gwat veterans that were coming back from a war that yeah. you know everybody was like wait what's going on how's that going and these you know the first wave yeah i think um you know there's a difference between it some of that writing now versus you know, 07, 06, what have you, but no, dude, listen, um, I think your book is going to stand. Um, I, I, I think your book is going to stand long after many others, um, because I do think because of the inherent creativity 
of the writing, it, it's it's um, it's an evergreen book. I think it's something that's going to speak to people for generations, and I and and it's not um, it's going to transcend memoir in many respects. And there's certainly God knows plenty of good memoirs that will stand the test of time, also. But it, this is um, it's a piece of literature, man. This is a keeper uh, in many respects, and um, I, I can't wait to see what happens with it. I really can't. If someone ever compares it to Jarhead, I'll consider it that I have made it. Uh, to me, that's like that. To me, that's the gold standard of like military memoirs because that was. I see parallels between that story and this one, and the fact that like they they didn't get their fucking combat like they wanted either. It was a lot of waiting, a lot of boredom. It was like that. To to this day, that that book is uh to me one of the best things I've ever fucking read about being a marine. Like it just it nails it. Well, there's a lot of poetry in the actual, in 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 what's real versus what's manufactured, you know, and versus the inherent drama. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It is so poetic, but uh, yeah, I don't know, man. Time will tell. Hopefully, it uh, hopefully it sells like fucking crack. Well, I'll tell you what, brother. When you're up here, uh, we'll uh, we'll we'll see how sales are going, and we'll see how sales go after Savage Wonder. But um, I th- I think this. I think this book is going to be measured in decades. I think it's, I think it's going to have a real, um, a real half-life. I think it's going to go on and on and on and get a bigger and bigger audience. I, I really do. I, I see big things for it. Um, I'm, I'm a somewhat easy sell cause I was a fan of yours to begin with, but I, I, this exceeded my expectations. This, really? this, yeah, it did. Um, I, 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 because, you know, I mean, obviously I know your, your work relatively well, um, the the way it was structured, I think the editing that you did, uh, the editing that Keith uh, helped you with some of the some of the focus, some of the uh, clarity, the turns of phrase, the capturing some some very nuanced moments. I I, I just see a, a really good uh, shelf life for this. Uh, I, I you know this was a bad episode for me to try to try to not be James Lifton on, but um, I'm a big fan, dude. I'm a big fan of this book. I. Uh, you know, you're the first repeat guest we've ever had on Savage Wonder. I uh, I know that only because I've listened to most of the episodes because I really enjoy it. Uh, I'll sing your praises a little bit. Like this is such a you do a great job of of moving the podcast right and and running an interview uh, just well. And it's always like focused without like being too structured. Um, you know, and it's cool because it's like it's all my friends and shit. Like. I'm gonna, you know, I, I get up in the morning, I make breakfast and I get ready for work. And I'm like, I'm listening to, to buck, you know, like bullshit for a while. And it's like, I wish I could just be there in the room, you know, cause it's like, or, or like the one with Amy, right? Like I I've gotten to know some of these people mostly through social media, but um, I'm pumped to have them all together at Savage Wonder. And it's like, or, or like the one with Dex, it's like, cause I know these people and it's like yeah. hearing, yeah. Hearing them get, you do such a good job of keeping the focus on them and their story and asking like, like you, like you come up with like good questions, right. Instead of just. Well, I appreciate it, dude. But I mean, honestly, it's, it's not really difficult. I mean, I think, I think the biggest challenge is getting the right people on the show. I think it's like directing actors, you know, casting is 80% of the job. You get the right person. A lot of the direction takes care of itself. And I think, you know with with all you guys buck um you know dex amy all all those folks it's been you know it's easy it, it's interesting people interesting stories articulate folks and phenomenal writers 
when when um, Buck said that he never once in his life tried to sit down and write a poem, I almost like spit my uh, my coffee out. It's like right. that's it's on brand. That's him. He's like a yeah. writer. He's like hates being a writer or so he's got this this whole you know he like is he wants so badly to do novels and just like poetry is like in the way for him but he puts it, it, out it's hilarious i know he's such a trip i that's oh, why man. that's why i want to i want to exploit that and 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 twist that to my own nefarious ends and get him to yeah. start doing plays or something because um i do with all you i mean every one of you it comes on this this show i want to i want to turn into playwrights because i'm like if you can do to plays what you do to poetry uh that would be fucking epic um one day one day chris i'll, I'll figure it out and then i'll win that ten thousand dollars <laughs> i'm looking oh, forward to it hey. broadway dude <laughs> <laughs> dude uh, yeah broadway has never seen anything like you that would be a fucking delight oh um God. hey brother listen uh we should speaking of savage wonder, I, my, my phone's blowing up with stuff, so I should jump on it. Yeah. Uh, this is such a pleasure, man. Um, I can't wait to fucking see what rock eater does. And, um, you may, you may, who knows in the dangerously near future, you might be the first tree Pete guest that we have on the show. Maybe. I don't know. You're going to let's, you want to plug this festival real quick. Um, uh, yeah, we can. I mean, look, uh, we, we certainly have talked about a bunch. I'm going to do a thing at the end in the outro, uh, to, to really hammer the shit out of it. But, um, I think for you, I don't know. I just started to get a couple of ideas while we were talking and they're probably still so in solution. I'm not sure I want to say them out loud yet, but I'll run some of this stuff by you, but, uh, yeah, it's going to be cool R- regardless of what happens, um, and what form your work takes, uh, on stage. I, it's going to be fucking badass. Cause I think there's, um, yeah, I think you, there's so many freaking great poets, pretty much everybody we just listed and more are going to be, uh, reading their stuff there and we'll have doc Oliver diving in and contributing music. Cause his music is like that perfect narrative music that kind of meshes well with poetry. Yeah. I'm um, and it's just going to be him. And, um, I don't know if his lap steel guy is going to come or if it's just going to be him, but whatever it's going to be, um, yeah, we're we're building it right now, but it's gonna be fucking badass, dude. Um, yeah, yeah. Let's see how that plays out. Now I may talk to you offline about some of the possibilities. All right, dude. This is a pleasure, man. Great fucking book. Congratulations, man. And thanks for letting me read it at a time. It um, well, well, well worth it. Absolutely, man. All right, brother. Let's talk to you down the road. All right. That was the Savage Wonder of Mason Roadrig. You've been listening to Savage Wonder, the podcast about warriors and artists and a production of the Veterans Repertory Theater. Um, I think you guys got enough out of that. If you've been listening to this whole episode, God bless you. I know it was a long one. Um, once the Mason Roadrig freight train starts, it, it does not come to a stop easily. And um, I'm thrilled when he can come on. It's a, it's an easy interview and it's always a fun ride with a lot of topics coming out, but I hope the biggest takeaway you have from that episode is, um, how worthwhile this book is. I know we gave you a lot of granular details, um, and walked through a lot of parts of that book, but, um, I hope it, it wet, whetted your appetite for buying the book and, and checking it out more in depth. It certainly warrants it. Okay. That's all I have to say about that. Uh, all of our lines of effort at vet rep, 
can be found at vetrep.org, V-E-T-R-E-P.org, vetrep.org. So the literary blog, if you like reading fiction, poetry, creative nonfiction, you can subscribe to the literary blog by going to the Now Playing tab at vetrep.org. You can listen to this podcast at vetrep.org. You can find out about our next Write Loud Instagram Live event on vetrep.org at the Now Playing tab. And you can also get tickets to our live shows. Uh, We have our 2022 stage reading series, as I told you up front. And of course, we have the Savage Wonder Festival on May 29th, 2022. Uh, Go to savagewonder.com for all the details about that festival. Again, that's savagewonder.com, savagewonder, all one word, dot com. If you're listening to us on iTunes, do me a favor, go ahead and leave us a five-star review. You can say whatever you want to us in the review, questions, comments, snide remarks, but if you could attach it to five stars, that would be outstanding. Your feedback is always appreciated, whether through iTunes or on social media, on Twitter and on Instagram, at VetRep Theater, V-E-T-R-E-P Theater, which is E-R, not R-E, for our intents and purposes. So on Twitter, Instagram, at VetRep Theater, or if you're on Facebook, at Veterans Repertory Theater. And I know nobody knows how to spell repertory. It is R-E-P-E-R-T-O-R-Y Theater, at Veterans Repertory Theater on Facebook. If you want to submit your work to Veterans Repertory Theater or to our literary blog, go to VetRep.org. Go to the submissions tab and you will find out all the information you need in order to send us what you have. As always, thanks to our producer, Mike Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer on behalf of the Veterans Repertory Theater. See you next time when we'll dive further into the savage wonder of it all.